had a uh, salad for dinner. What kind of salad? Uh, <laughs> I had the crab Louis, quote unquote, salad. It's a kind of regular salad with a bunch of fake crab on it. I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Well, I think crab Louis is a certain kind of fancy person's crab that you can get in a certain kind of like fancy person's restaurant. But um, it's pretty much a salad with uh, Thousand Island dressing and crab. <laughs> All right. Is it crab with a K? Mm-hmm. 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 I don't know what kind of animal it actually comes from. I think it's Alaskan Pollock, I want to say. I hope that's not ping pong. I think it's called Pollock. You like fake crab? I do not. I don't like fake crab. I don't, you don't, I you don't like... eat seafood? You don't have any kind of seafood, right? Nope. Well, I mean, not really. Like, I eat calamari, I eat tuna from a can, I eat shrimp if I have to. Mm-hmm. But you, if you're going to an Italian restaurant, you're, you're not going to get... Like soul or something like that. Nope. Nope, nope. Ah, oh, John, you're missing out. Missing out. They're having a bumper bumper crop of lobster this year. Mini, mini lobsters. <laughs> Who is they? Who is this that's having the bumper crop? Big lobster. Yeah. We got the lobsters here in Maine. I do not partake mm. of the giant sea insects. They are kind of, I mean, I don't know a lot about the science, but they, they are kind of just filters, right? A lot of them, don't they just kind of filter bilge? I don't know. All I know is they look like uh, big insects, and I don't really like how they taste that much. Yeah, also lobsters feel pain. Yeah, <laughs> do they? Mm-hmm. I read a Wikipedia article about it. Uh, that's why they scream when you throw their bodies into the uh, the boiling water. Turns it's out... Not, it's tur- not the steam escaping at all. It's their tiny screams. Well, close. Uh, it turns out, from what I hear, that it's actually the uh, the flesh tearing away from the shell as they're dropped into the boiling hot water. The flesh screams. Hmm? Yes, it does. Is that from? Is that from? Uh, is that from your game? Is that from Destiny? What's it, it called? Might as, it might as well be. It could, it could very well be. I haven't read the entire Book of Sorrows yet, but it's probably in there. You 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 unleashed a, a whole big can of confusing on the Slack the other day. I didn't say anything, but but you and Dan Morin were were really you were deep. It it, on, you, it seemed like uh, you were like maybe like a Markov chain or something. Like you were you were really going hammer and tongs on some terminology. But it's not though. Like it's it's very straightforward. It's just that you don't know the proper nouns. That's it. Yeah, I feel like it's if I if I listen to like somebody speak Esperanto long enough, I'd be able to figure out if they were talking about a restaurant. That's kind of how I feel when you and Dan talk about destiny. Yeah, because I guess the proper nouns don't have any signifiers to let you know: is this a place? Is this a person? Is this a thing? If it's a thing, what kind of thing? Uh, you know, you have to know, you know the categories of things at this point, but you don't know what each one of them is and did, yeah there's did i gather there's something that you have as an alternative to your thorn that you that you you have mixed feelings about i don't remember the discussion maybe i was why don't was i talking about uh how i realized that might was still good i think you uh you were doing uh, the crucible of galapagos and uh <laughs> you, you captured a, a a ghost horcrux or something no, you're crossing the streams there. I think I was talking about how I had a, a, a bounty for scout rifle kills in the Crucible, and I was using one of the new year two scout rifles, uh, one of the best ones that was it's really good. Uh, but then I said, you know what, let me go try the one from year one, which isn't really good anymore. But with uh, leveling advantages disabled in plain old Crucible, it doesn't really make a difference. But I went back to it, and it turns out the year one one was better. Uh, so I'm kind of kind of playing with some old school weapons now just because... They were really good. Like they kind of rebalanced for year two. They, I think, in year one, there's the always the temptation to make the really good, whatever gun, the really good scout rifle, the really good hand cannon, and you can go too far with that. If you make it too good, then 
like all the other guns look like crap and why would you ever use them you don't want to you want a balanced game it's as if you had like a monopoly in the shoe got uh, to go take two turns whenever else got to go or like once. take an extra throw if they didn't like the uh, roll right and like, everyone would just use the shoe it's like well then you just broke the game because right, you right, can't right. it has to it has to be you want it to be balanced well some of the year one weapons break the game a little bit in that they are like what's good about a scout rifle you want and for crucible you want it to be stable you want it to uh have some interesting perk you wanted to have a good uh, fire rate and impact and they're just like you know what the game designs like, i can make a scout rifle like that and they made might a multi-tool and it's super stable and it gives you extra agility uh, and has really good firing rate and impact uh it's and it's just it's a little bit too good so uh, none of the year two stuff i found even talalak if that's how you pronounce it in fully char- <laughs> in fully charged form uh is very potent but in crucible i still feel like mida gives the advantage because of the agility boost so um, we talk about these year two things. Is this, you'll remember or may not, uh, a few episodes back uh, before we talked about Destiny, you talked about reading what you jokingly refer to as the crop report. Is that where you were learning about what, what these year two changes would be? Part of the uh, having a modern game is sort of constant communication with the people who are playing your game, especially if you expect them to give you more money over the course of the year for expansions or for you know uh, other things that you can buy related to the game. And so you're constantly putting out, like they have a weekly newsletter and various updates on their website and people post things on Twitter and stuff. And they release information a little bit at a time. It's kind of like, I don't think what it's uh, most like, it's kind of like controlled leaks from a technology company, not Apple, but some other company that tells you like about their product that's coming or maybe like uh, in an office environment where there's going to be some big change coming and they start try to soften up the employees for it, like they're moving the office someplace else or there's going to be a big rearrangement of the departments or something. So they, they let the information out in little dribs and drabs, like, you know, like, you know, th- three or four months before year two, it said year two is coming and we're going to do a big weapon rebalancing. Uh, and here's some of our philosophy behind it. And the next week they'd be like, here are some concrete details about the weapon rebalancing. Uh, in light of the philosophy, we just told you we're going to do this, we're going to do that. These are going to be moved up like this. These are going to move down like that, so on and so forth. This is before almost anything had been revealed about the Taken King or, or Year Two stuff, just to give give us time to just sit with that one, just that what they're going to do to the weapon rebalancing. You don't know what any of the new weapons are going to be. You don't know anything about the Year Two stuff, what the new classes are going to be, what the new content's going to be. Just the weapon rebalancing, and it's 2.0. 2.0 is not coming out for a long time. Don't worry about it. So it gave people time to stew on that, and then they reveal a little bit about the, the Taken King, and then they reveal a little bit more. So. They give it to you in little bits because they dropped it on you all at once. It could be too much, and they want to gauge the reaction. Um, so like, that's like, kind like of the, like, uh, like the grays. Does it function like a trial balloon? Do you think they are, they being, I guess, Bungie, are they out there, do you think, monitoring the feedback from people about how people will uh, feel about it? They are, but I don't think it's not as if they're going to make huge adjustments because uh, just reading the crop report for the weapon rebalancing or reading about the new subclasses or seeing them play like people are going to have opinions but they've already done tons of playtesting internally what they want to see is how it works in practice mm-hmm. uh, and so when it was actually released then people use it and they look at the stats and they make some tweaks here or there but um really it's mostly kind of how you tell your kid like you know this weekend we're going to be doing whatever activity and you give them like three days warning you keep talking about it every day and and like so it's, they, it's almost time to go back to school we got to start working on bedtime mm-hmm. you, get, you get them like a a little bit of a warning shot. Yeah, you just want to get used to the idea because if you spring it on all at once, like, guess what? Today was the last day of summer and tomorrow you have school. Like, wait, what? No, you got to, like, uh, you know, ease your way in. Are you, um, well, what are your feelings about how things are going so far? We, we talked, again, I guess mostly during the Destiny episode about 
what sounds like a 10-year plan for how they want to um, build the platform over time. Uh, are you satisfied with the way things are changing? They fixed a lot of the the bad stuff from year one. They Some of the things, like they, they said all the right things, like a politician, like we know that in year one you did a lot of this activity that was boring, and we really don't want that to happen in year two. But that's I just did an activity in year two that was the exact one they said that was boring. They didn't want people to be farming planetary materials, right? Uh, taking different routes to open up different randomly appearing chests because that's super boring. You're not really shooting anything. And we don't want to do that in year two. Well, guess what? There's a big long quest where you have to collect like 150 things out of chests uh, because there's like a one in 20 or one in 15 or one in 30, depending on who you ask, chance that one of the ones you open up will have this other special item in it. And it's that sounds, that and- sounds really boring. It's tedious and boring. And they said in the, you know, the lead up to year two, we realized there was too much of that in year one and we're not going to do that in year two. Well, guess what? You did it. Not everywhere, but like that's in there. Um, and they're changing the pricing model. Supposedly in year two, instead of selling expansions for 30 bucks each, they're going to have things that you can purchase in game with real money, but that do not affect the gameplay. So is that, cosmetic, is that cosmetic that's silver? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, uh, but like Dan, Dan, Dan was talking about on, uh, six colors. I think he was talking about how you can, uh, dance and point and stuff like that you you buy like little micro transactions yeah you're buying emotes they call them it makes your little character dance it doesn't affect the game in any way because it's not like you need to dance to to do anything in the game it is purely cosmetic and so that's what they're going to be selling and i bet they're going to sell a lot of them because people like to buy those cheap little things that are purely cosmetic uh if it means the expansions are free instead of 30 bucks each that's fine with me uh, the moment they start selling things that affect gameplay then i'm gonna have to re-examine because that's not really what i signed up for if you um if you had access to the corridors of power, um, what are the kinds of things that you would suggest or request that you'd like to see um, done differently? With how, doing, the, how however you think about that, they're doing a pretty good job. They, I mean, like the, the for not doing things that are boring, things things that are a grind or are tedious or not fun, any sort of collecting type missions, uh, that's pretty lame. Um, I would like to see some way for a lot of the good year one stuff to continue to progress, even though I already said it's a little bit unbalanced. As time moves on, presumably the number of people who have been there since year one is going to be smaller smaller and smaller uh, a percentage of the entire user base. So I think those people should be rewarded with maybe having one or two items that are a little bit better than everybody else's. I say that selfishly because I have those items. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's like it's a shame to just leave them behind entirely. Um, and then another selfish thing is like, uh, they should do matchmaking in more activities. They tend to want people to be able to find groups, uh, to do things in groups. They don't want to do like automatically put you in groups. It's like, oh, we really need to be able to talk to people and know them. And, and a lot of, all that is true, but there's so many offline matchmaking groups that happen that that should just be built into the game in a better way. Like so many other things, like a lot of the lore and stuff that is outside the game, because there are so many matchmaking services where people go to websites and sort of organize around those websites and then they all go to the game together. That's obviously something that people want to do mm-hmm. because it's hard to get six people that you actually know all online at the same time. So people just go to these websites and say, hey, I'm ready to do activity X. Who else wants to do activity X? And within 30 seconds, there's five other people who want to do activity X. Then you all find each other and you all find each other on PlayStation Network and then you all go into the game. That should all be built into the game because it's seems, obviously a thing like they, people want to do. It seems like they want to own that experience. Yeah, it's, it's not good to go to a website and do it and have to, you know, exchange PSN names and go. It, it should totally be built into the game because it's obviously a thing that people want to do and people are doing it. And maybe they're just happy to say, fine, use the websites. Like, we don't want to deal with that. You organize however you want outside the game. But something's got to be in the game. Mm-hmm. Hmm. A lot of world there. 
Um, why don't we get to our topic? I think um, I think we agree on a topic for this week. You're gonna jump right in. I have some uh, some checking in with Merlin stuff. Oh no, I would love that, please. Actually, I think I only have one or two checks. Someone on Twitter reminded me uh, to ask you again whether you ever finished watching the game. Oh no, no, no! But I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I, I'm about halfway through. Mm-hmm. You say you're going to. Did you recall that you had watched half of that movie uh, before I just mentioned it right now? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. but you know, on an infinite time scale, um, you know, it's it's definitely there. It's in my recently viewed on Plex. If I scroll really, really far to the right, if it's not on a calendar, it doesn't exist. Is there something on your calendar that you know says what? finish watching the game? I'm I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. There's a lot of a lot of new shows out that I'm watching, but I'm gonna make really? time for this. Yeah. What what new shows are you watching? Well, you know, return shows. Mm. I'm having a, I'm having a strange. I must tell you, I I am uh, having watched maybe half a dozen returns of shows um it uh, is not what i expected I, i'm surprised by the things i like more and less this season to tell you the truth name some names um uh what's the uh claire dance one home homeland Homemind. uh i haven't seen the first episode of the season yet so no spoilers but no spoilers but um if you have uh at all shared any measure of my disappointment about how Mm, stupid the show gets <laughs> and mm-hmm. how how you know i mean you know how it is we talk about this all the time I mean, what's the world you want to build what are the rules of that world okay now go right it's just it got it got so silly and you know for so long i mean this is just a setup to, to why i was surprised but you know I, i've been slogging along it's a show it's one of the i don't know one of the handful of shows my wife and i both like to watch together so it's worth it to stick with it you know for family uh but I guess, was it this season, the previous season or the one before that? I mean, the last two seasons have both really had some weird dips. I mean, some Doctor Who, like, what is going on here dips in the show. And it got real silly. And then they got, they you know, just when you think they're straightening out, then, oh, we got to get back to, you know, Crazy Carrie. Let's have our Crazy Carrie section for a while, which increasingly feels more and more like a derail that they need to mostly leave behind unless they want to make it the central focus of the show because it's a huge distraction and kind of splits the plots in a dumb way. So with that said, we watched Sunday's episode, and um, I should warn you, it will contain some really, really silly hacking. There's some hacking in it that you're going to have some problems with. I'm prepared for that. But the hacking is kind of, it's a little bit of a MacGuffin. It mostly just gets the plot going. I thought it felt like a, a more grown-up show than the show's been for a while. Um, other ones... You know, I, I really loved Brooklyn Nine-Nine a lot for what it is. Like, for what it, you know, it's a, it's a silly, fun, you know, kind of baggy pants comedy with heart. I mean, it's kind of like a Parks and Rec in a police, police uh, station, kind of. First couple of episodes have not moved me. Like, I, I, they, they, uh, I miss Andre Brower being, you know, right in the middle of the mix. And they're, they're making him have to be silly with, with the lady from that movie. And I, I don't know if I like that. I got others, but what are your feelings on things you've... Are you watching the Doctor Who? My DVR is. I'm planning on watching it, but I'm, I have quite a backlog of stuff that I may or may not get to. I don't really have room for any new shows this season, although I did watch the first episode of Quantico, which I knew would be silly from seeing the previews, and guess what? It was super silly. It was uh. exactly what I thought it was going to be. I'm assuming it's going to be canceled as part of the reason I'm watching it. It's what's the, what's like, the genre of Quantico? It's a, it's a thriller, th- mystery-solving CIA show? 
I, I think it is network. So it's got that kind of network feel where everything <laughs> is kind of kindergarten, you know, yeah, right. preschool level, but uh, still ostensibly for adults. And the whole idea is there is a woman FBI agent. Uh, oh boy, the, the preview and the first episode is like, that should have been your whole first season. But it was the first episode, which makes me think they're just gonna, we just got to get this out. We have this idea. Right. And it's, it's you know, like. Like, will episode five have anything to say? No, well, like the whole first season, like in the trailers, they basically tell you there's a woman FBI agent. She's a new recruit. Uh, there's a terrorist bombing. And she's framed for it, but obviously she didn't do it because she's our hero. Uh, right. Yeah and, yeah. and she's and she's framed for it because she doesn't. She looks like a terrorist. Kind of. She's Indian. But, you know, whatever. That's all. That's and, all you need. And, so, yeah. and that's that's in the trailer, that entire plot. Ah. Um, and that's in episode one. And so it's like, where do you like it should have been. There's a new recruit. Let's see all these recruits do their recruiting stuff. And by the end of season one, something terrible happened. And guess what? They think it's her. But no, that was episode one. Uh, it's it's, uh, you know, I've talked before about like um, how frustrating I you know, like if I'm doing a lot of traveling, I start to really notice how balkanized the experience of being in a hotel is. We may end up talking about this later, but it's always interesting to me that like it's very rare that you go to a hotel and it clicks on all cylinders. The check-in is great. The room is clean. The toiletries are nice. There's no gunk in the bathtub. Room service is good. Gift shop takes credit cards. Like, oh, there's all these different pieces because the whole experience of that is so balkanized. And it's very rare that somebody gets all of those things right because there's not there's not like a project manager who's making sure that all those pieces fit together. Right. There's business units that do all those different things. That's how I feel anyway. And I really I feel like that with TV shows where it's so maddening to me. I feel like there's so many shows where they get like in the case of what's the doodle uh, doodle booty um, they talk about (laughs) on Jason and uh, Tim Goodman's podcast, the tattooed lady in a bag. Did you watch that? No, I don't even know what you're talking about. Tattooed lady in a bag. Uh, uh, I think it's like Times Square. Uh, The police come in. There's a, a duffel bag. You open up and there's a hot lady with tattoos in it. And all the tattoos have been put on her, and they tell a story about this mystery. She has no memory. And it's like the woman, it's like another one of those things where she's great. The guy who's obviously going to be her, like, partner in figuring oh, out is this, this mystery. Is blind spot? Blind spot. Uh, all right. All right. Got to know. But, like, you watch it, and you're like, oh, you just, I feel like I just, I see all the, I don't know, I have this, like, John Nash moment where I feel like I see all the lines flying through the air and have a vague idea of, like, pretty much how this is going to turn out. Is that network, too? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, think, this I is the problem so. these days. Sure. Like, I don't know. I have like an anti-network prejudice, but it, there's like a, it's not that it's low quality or low production value. It's just that everything is kind of blanded down. Like, well, the, it's all, yeah, it's kind of like McDonald's. Like, you know, it's kind of like if you go to a corporate, a busy corporate McDonald's. You've probably heard me say this before. If you go to a busy corporate McDonald's at lunchtime and you like McDonald's food there's a pretty good chance that you are going to get the food that you want because it's consistent. They know what to make to please people. Their quality control is high enough because they're making money. You know, it's, you know, when you go to a rural franchise McDonald's, your experience may be different. But like with CBS, I get the feeling they know what sells. They know their demo or, you know, not not to just beat up on CBS because I know that's a, that's a punching bag. But, you know, I think a lot of these networks have it down pretty tight. They know what they're trying to do and they know their limits. And you know they honor that it's it's a it's a business, but you're right. There's a there's a feel to it. There's a and there's feel. no there's no flair. Like there's no you, never mind feeling like you know authorial intent or some sort of like single vision. There's like there's just no flair. Like even the individual departments as a sort of designed by committee uh, program. Like you know it just it just feels kind of uh, 
by the numbers and especially with something like quantico that could have been interesting it's an interesting premise and the idea of the very first episode could have been an interesting season one very much like homeland like a similar type of thing where you know this is an environment people are interested in it's a, it's an interesting story uh the, the casting is more diverse than usual which isn't saying much for network tv but still um and they just they you know they glam it up it's like well people expect a certain amount of things and uh and you know we're gonna do those things and it's kind of a shame but anyway i'm watching because i just totally assume it will be canceled so i'll watch the first season to see if they can wrap it up in a bow by the by the end of the season that's the only new show i think i have tried everything else is uh returning let me go look at my let's say channel directory and see what i have in here uh i've been watching stephen colbert mm, still kind of waiting for it to catch fire like i love him to death i love what he's trying to do i don't think that show is a great fit for what he's great at yeah, I've watched a couple episodes too, and I'm I'm generally not a fan of like the late night talk show format. I watched Letterman as a kid. I watched Carson as a kid, but I kind of uh, drifted away from that format. And so I can't even tell if he's doing a good job in that format because it's so mutated so much with the you know the Jimmy Fallon type things and even Conan yeah. O'Brien. Like it has changed so much that I don't even know how to judge it. Like all I know is it's not Carson and it's not Letterman. Right. Not early, not early Letterman. I didn't even follow into the late Letterman. Um, but then when I see him doing his thing, it's all right. But I think I've, you know, I daily show was more to my taste. I haven't even watched the new daily show. Speaking of things, I need to, uh, to, uh, take a look at that. Well, you know, a lot of these shows, I'm far from the first person to point this out, but you know, one thing that afflicts a fair amount of late night at this point, And I mean, it's like, if you watch Saturday night live and you can tell it's very electric in the room. Like, it must be very exciting to see Miley Cyrus walk out and, like, do a monologue. But it's, you know, when you're watching it at home, it's it's so big. It's playing so big. Everything is so loud. There's not a lot of room for subtlety. And it becomes like NASCAR, where you're mostly just watching to see if there's going to be a wreck, which is not a fun way to watch TV. What Letterman did, what for a long time Jon Stewart did, but not all the time, was to play a little smaller I had to kind of give up on Daily Show with John Stewart for a while uh, toward the end, just because he was always yelling. He was just there was always it was always yelling. Or you get like the kind of you know God bless him, Jimmy Fallon, whoever any of these hosts, they're so eager to please. They're so and, and speaking as somebody who's eager to please, I can totally clock that. Is that everything is everything is so big, everything is so over the top. There's so much brass in the arrangement of everything that they do. It's just constant blaring overture, and there's just not room for that that smallness that something like Letterman so excelled at was like he was having fun as the like inert eye of the hurricane, like the center of all this Hollywood madness and sending that up, which I know is a you know 30-year-old, 35-year-old idea at this point. But I guess that's the thing with Colbert is I think he's a gamer. He's trying hard. I have endless respect for the guy. But like on the show, it's like, you know, his little segments he does at the desk are fun. His inter- he's a very good interviewer, but the show wants to be a morning zoo in some ways and i that i just can't watch that all the time yeah that format like it's just not it's a relic that and you can you know what you know Conan it's, like from, and, it's from the 60s it's a 60s format uh, letterman gave the format some extra life way more than it probably deserves and then conan tried to go in a new direction with it uh playing off what letterman did and then jimmy fallon is trying to do a modern twist but at a certain point you got to be like that format it's like the variety show at a certain point that format is not like there's nothing you can do with with that format 
uh, Colbert, it's, it's kind of a shame that, that he got this gig because I feel like if he had designed his own show, he wouldn't design it in this format. And I know they're all, everyone is trying to put their twist on it and tweak it and do their thing. And by selection of guests, you can say a lot and different segments and, and you know, like, but I just, uh, I don't know if there's more game to be had in that thing. The Daily Show, like, it, it had its ups and downs, but The Daily Show, I felt like, because it was so short and because it was every day, you're like, well, that was a stinker, but whatever, who cares? And I always felt like Jon Stewart had an edge. Like, he was not eager to please in the same way that Colbert seems to be. He was always a little bit, like I said, a little bit angry and a little bit, you know, there was a little bit of seething underneath. And I, I enjoyed right. the fact that he kept that edge for such a long time. I mean, there's, you know, there's stinker shows, there's whole stinker weeks of shows. And, and a lot of these segments were hit or miss with the various guests and stuff. But like, I just kept going back to it because it was always two or three things that uh, made it funny. And I, and uh, to be honest, a lot of the the John Stewart stuff is the familiarity of, like, I come from that area. I recognize that attitude, that person, that accent, those mannerisms, that culture that speaks to me because I'm from there. And that doesn't make it a better show, but it makes right. me feel comfortable with it. Let me give you one of my favorite examples with one of my favorite people from that show and one of my all-time favorite classic sketches. Um, do you remember... Uh, Rob Corddry going back to Boston. Yep, yep. You know, come on, Corddry. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I, I still watch that. I still laugh. And a lot of what makes it funny is, first of all, John Stewart gives it a lot of room to breathe. He's not there, like, you know, leaning on the whole thing. But you know what makes it great is Corddry does the whole thing straight. It would not be funny if he were laughing at his own jokes. Rob Corddry, and I, you know, when he's on Back to Work, I was asking him about this. Like, Rob Corddry going into a bar undercover as a bald man you know, or having like a sombrero <laughs> over his bald spot and talking about discrimination against men who wear tiny hats. Like that's funny because he played it so straight. And it feels like as I would check in on a lot of these shows, there was more and more like straight up laughing at their own jokes. Again, spoken as somebody who laughs at his own jokes. But, you know, that's different. I mean, when Letterman was always laughing at the stuff that wasn't funny or that was bombing and that became part of what made it funny. It's just that there's not there's not enough air in this. I mean, first of all, there's not the straightness that makes good improv good because they're invested in what what it is that they're doing in the sketch. But I don't know, it just it, it feels very eager to please sometimes, and I I guess that makes it a little broader. I, I mean, here's another example. It's like you're a little young for this, but you know, there were as a kid I watched Saturday Night Live, as a kid I watched Fridays, but there was something very special about SCTV. Um, did you ever watch SCTV as a kid? No, I've only seen the, you know, the YouTube videos and the, I've seen before the dawn of YouTube, I had seen it because that's where all the SNL people came from. And you'd see all these videos about, well, this is where, you know, like the the behind the scenes uh, SNL, uh, this is where this SNL cast came from. So I've seen SCTV skits, but never like as they were actually airing. But something that made, so you're familiar with those people, but something that made SCTV, extra special, extra different, and extra weird was, first of all, it was Canadian, and there was a slightly different sense of humor about it, I think. Kids in the Hall would be my thing, because I did watch that. Right, but here's the difference. Yes, absolutely. I I love Kids in the Hall. So gentle, but, like, still so penetrating. But, like, but with SCTV, key key difference, and I I have argued online with famous comedians and writers about this, I don't like laugh tracks. I think you take, you go watch MASH without the laugh track versus MASH with the laugh track, you are watching two completely different shows. MASH becomes a lot more sophisticated without the laugh track. SCTV, think about uh, Eugene Levy doing the bit where he's playing somebody who's cross-eyed. You know what I mean? Think about the Eugene Levy face that he makes like in every Christopher Guest movie where he's basically cross-eyed. The dumbest comic bit in the world. When you have a guy doing an over-the-top Jew in a wig with crossed eyes and a laugh track, 
it's real baggy pants, like almost vaudeville. Having an old Jew in a wig doing crossed eyes with no laugh track is so goddamn weird. <laughs> and it's what made the show so great. The whole pacing of the show was so strange because you could just like hear them moving around the set. There was not the constant need to like punctuate why this was funny. It was funny because it was weird, and it was weird because it didn't have the laugh track constantly cueing you. And it just seems like there's so much need to constantly punctuate and remind people why what they're watching is amusing, whether that's through music cues, like ridiculous camera angles, silly effects, whatever it is, like all that stuff is very wearing and cliched and it ages a show sooner than it needs to, I think. That's one other aspect that can make shows enjoyable and for we Americans, it is a similar thing with both Canadians and people from the UK. Monty Python, part of the reason I think a lot of Americans like Monty Python is because it's weird because it's a culture we don't recognize. So on top of them being hilarious by themselves, there's the added twist of, by the way, things that aren't actually even funny also seem a little bit weird to you because you don't you don't live there. You don't have yeah, the you accent. Don't know, you don't know the references. You don't, yeah, you don't know the cultural references. You learn the references only through Monty Python and they become funny. And Canadian, it's not like you're from England, but it's, you know, it, it's different. Like, what well, you, you can get a certain vibe from SCTV or Kids in the Hall. Is that a Canadian vibe? I don't know. We come to associate it with it being a Canadian vibe. They certainly say words in a slightly different way. And they have, they think they have different attitudes about humor in the same way that British humor is a little bit different than uh, American humor. And so those, I felt like, in the same way that I feel lucky to be able to relate to Jon Stewart because I come from that part of the country and understand that culture, I feel lucky not to relate to Canadian humor and, uh, you know, British humor because they have the added twist of being exotic to me. Hmm. <clears throat> I feel like one thing I should say that it doesn't need to be said, but I would feel remiss not to say it. I asked Hodgman, Hodgman about this. I have asked Rob Corddry about this. I have heard numerous anecdotes about this. Every single person I've ever heard talk about Jon Stewart and working with him says the same thing, that there is nobody in that that's ever been in that building that works as hard every day as that guy. And like Hodgman would talk specifically about how he'd come in with like a mostly finished bit. And even though, even though like he's, you know, John Stewart's writing, he's, he's editing, he's doing all this stuff, he would still find a way to like, he would work the man. Hodgman would come in there and, and like with all respect, you know, Hodgman actually came out of this like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Like I just, I have so much respect for what John Stewart did for that many years. I mean, and then even to know like, you know what, maybe we're in a rough patch right now. Maybe it's not the greatest stuff, but we just, this is what we do every day. You know, it's tonight might be good or bad. Tomorrow might be good or bad. The point is we will be here every night doing this and this is our work. And I have a lot of respect for that work ethic. Yeah. And he's got the like I I saw him come up to the ranks. Like if you'd seen him on the terrible MTV shows that he hosted and all the other crappy jobs he had uh, that he really they say called paying your dues. But really, it's just like he could have been that could have been his whole career. Uh, And all it means is that when he did land the daily show which seemed like a death sentence because i watched it with craig kilborn like who's this new guy this show is doomed anyway i don't know why they even got this new guy in here right so he was obviously super motivated too mm-hmm. like he realized how lucky he was because he had he had been you know in, in the lower ranks and seen how terrible it was down there it's like this is my shot and i'm you know and i think I don't know if his work ethic was like that when he was hosting a remote control or whatever the other shows that he had. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Uh, maybe he wasn't as, you know, but but I think after a bunch of those, he realized, uh, you know, you got to uh, grab the reins and just, you know, not let go. And so, yeah, he, I, I, I respect his work ethic, even if I don't, a lot of times I don't agree with his taste in humor. A lot of times, you know, the same thing with the guests. That's, by the way, that's another great thing about The Daily Show. It was like, 
the the new Saturday Night Live in that it was the farm team for all sorts of amazing talent that would go. I mean, Stephen Colbert just to pick one, but there's so many yeah. other people came through. You forget, like when they did that last episode, the show, all the people uh, used to be correspondents. That was amazing. I forgot how many people. I mean, I didn't forget, but seeing them all in one place, I was like. Yeah. There have to be a dozen people doing amazing stuff right now who essentially mostly got their start at a, on, a, on a national level from this show. And some of them weren't even that good on the show. That's the thing. Like, But this was their launching pad to bigger and better things for them, like better fits for their talents and stuff. Like, I mean, you know, what's that? I, I keep for, forgetting that. Uh, what's his name? Steve Carell. Yeah. I'm yeah like, I constantly oh, yeah. forget. Steve to- Carell was great. He would do his uh, the cooking segment on there. Yeah. Those, those are the people like. You, you, you know, why didn't we realize when they were on The Daily Show that they were obviously just passing through, right? The, Col- the Colbert <laughs> and, you know, uh, what, Carell, like, it's they were just too good, right? And the other people who you see on The Daily Show, and they're like, man, they're all right. They usually don't make me funny. And then you see them in a movie, and like, these guys are amazing. Like, they were obviously, this was not the format for them on The Daily Show, but they, like, they put in the work there. They got their, their face out there. They honed their skills, and then they found something better suited to them. Um, in, in a way that SNL used to be much more so than it is now. Although I've been impressed with a lot of the uh, the, the recent SNL cast transition to movies as well. Did like, you? Uh, I got two more for you. Did you see the Saturday Night Live with Miley Cyrus this last week? I started watching the monologue, didn't laugh, and deleted it. Wow, that was a rough episode. All right, well I made the right choice. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, okay. And then uh, here's the other one. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna hmm, I'm gonna touch the third rail. I'm gonna go there. What's your feeling on uh, John Oliver's show? Uh, I like John Oliver. I think he's funny. I think he's funny partly because he's British, but also because he is my kind of obsessive nerd humor on on his show where he gets a chance to like, no, it's not going to be just a one liner joke. I'm going to talk about the same topic for the next five minutes. Obviously, that appeals to me. I can see how it annoys other people, but it's like it is right up my alley. Um Sometimes he struggles to work in the joke, but almost, but I don't even care at that point. I just like seeing somebody do the kind of uh, angry ranting. Like my style of angry ranting is John Oliver's style of angry ranting, not uh, Lewis Black style. Okay, right? sure. There's a lot, a lot that I like about John Oliver. I loved him on The Daily Show. I love him on, I haven't listened in a while, but I used to love him on The, is it the Bugle, the podcast he does. I think he's terrific. I think he's very funny. I even appreciate his obvious desire to please and the fact that after he makes the joke, he keeps making the joke until he's sure you understand and he points at the graphic. Mm, you know, that that's good. That that, that works. I got to say, um, I'm a flaming liberal, but I sometimes feel a little bit of shooting fish in a barrel on that show. I, 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 there's, I don't know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be wrong and yelled at about this, but like sometimes I watch it and I'm like, man, this is liberal porn. This is this is really. I mean, there's great cases to be made. Sometimes, it, obviously, great causes. But like, man, they can really lean on a point. And I don't know. I don't do enough of my own due diligence to know if they're providing a, a perfectly rounded view of things. But I sometimes feel like they leverage how strongly we liberals feel about things to get a lot of super angry humor out of stuff that might be a little more subtle than it seems. I'm not talking about check cashing places. I'm not talking about TV evangelists who are obviously stealing, but that's an editorial voice. To choose a target that you can hit that hard, I think 
they lose a couple points on difficulty for going for targets where they can like nail someone into, into the uh, wall. Well, the Daily Show was even more guilty of that because they well, would, while constantly while constantly would, saying we're not a news show. Yeah, they would pick the easy targets and they would just just dip in long enough to get in the cheap shot and then run away. John Oliver, at the very least, builds a case. It is a one sided case and is obviously aimed at you know preaching to the choir type of thing. But I like the thoroughness because you can watch uh, John Stewart, and if you're not, you know, uh, informed on these issues or looking to them yourselves, it can just seem like an equal opportunity, silly. Head. And it is like he would just—he'll take jabs at, at Arby's, he'll take jabs at the Democrats for, <laughs> for having bad hair, he'll take ja- like he'll take jabs at, at anybody and anything, anything that's funny. And in that respect, like that kind of excuse, like oh, we're just a comedy show, there was some cover in that because you know what? They would not pass up a good joke. Like it just. This, there's no real point to this. There's no real agenda. It's just a funny joke. And obviously they would, you know, it was a huge liberal slant to the uh, to the editorial position of the show. But they were not afraid. Like, they, they just wanted to laugh, right? Whereas John Oliver is choosing topics that he can go after and going after them in depth. And I think it's because he himself is, is frustrated by... I mean, it seems to me like a reaction to The Daily Show. The Daily Show, I got to get in my one-two punch. Here, I get to just really pummel the guy and really and in some respects it's more informative because he does give you more information than than the two liners that john stewart would give you the two liners that john stewart would give you are only as knowingly funny as they are if you already know about the issue whereas john oliver actually serves a, a, a more of an informational role like a lot of the daily show you have to already know what the hell he's talking about you have to have already read the new york times thing about the thing read the big interview with the person, know everything surrounding the issue. That's mm-hmm. why the jokes are phony, because he's making a joke in that context. Whereas John Oliver is more like, you may not know what I'm talking about here. I'm going to take the time to explain it. Isn't this absurd? You may if not even already, know, you might not know this phenomenon even exists. Right. And we might already know it. And then we're like, oh, you're just shooting a fish in a barrel. I already know all this stuff you're telling me. Of course, you know, uh, for pay universities are just, uh, you know, uh, robbing the government through people who they don't care about. But a lot of people don't know about that. And so I like the fact that that is... It is it is delivering information uh, to people who might not watch the sixty minutes thing they ran about Phoenix University fifteen years ago or whatever the you know the first time I saw this thing right and I, it doesn't mean like I I still record it I watch it every once in a while um, I don't know uh, you know it, it but but like I said I I relate to him as a person and I think his show is an interesting twist on the daily show format and sort of serves a purpose and yes of course it's preaching to the choir and shooting fish in a barrel but that's what all these shows are i don't think it's for the most part he's been pretty careful to not be dishonest unlike the daily show which very often would go after the cheap shot that wasn't even based in truth you know right hmm did you um yeah supergirl show isn't out yet I'm excited about that because I'm hoping it is one of the first non-reality shows that the entire family will be able to watch together. Because it seems like kinder and gentler, so my you know eight-year-old daughter can watch it, I hope. Well, there may or may not be a copy of the first episode uh, that's fallen off the back of a truck or not. And it may be something my daughter wants to watch every day because it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I'm looking for, like a fam, a right family in the show. Yes, and it's like, 
Yes, yes. I am I am looking really forward to this. I mean, in the same way that I don't, I don't know if you like Flash, but like it's like, you know, as Flash is to Arrow, where Arrow's, you know, so it's not, it's a good show, but it's pretty dark. Flash is, you know, for the most part like kind of a like a, a family show, Supergirl even more so. Yeah, I was asking about Flash. My son was expressing interest in Flash. I want to see The Flash. This is something that I know I didn't have time for when it was first airing, but oh, I know I wanted really... to catch up on. I did Daredevil first because I mean, I figured I'm more into gritty. Maybe I should have done Flash first in retrospect, but uh, my son was asking about Flash. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if Flash is suitable for my eight year old. Do you think it's like, is there too much violence? That's what I was worried about. Basically, that there'd be too much violence or like other things that might be upsetting to an eight year old. I don't think so. I mean, I would say watch the first episode, which, as it happens, is a really good episode. Um, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not like reading Proust. I mean, it's not, you're going to be able to figure some things out, but they're pretty good about rolling stuff out in such a way that even while fun stuff is happening and you're cheering for the hero, there is still some story unfolding. And uh, I, I would say at least watch, definitely watch the pilot. Um, we love it. We, we are, I mean, I think the new episodes start tonight as we record this and we're really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, family shows over the world. The only show we watch as a family so far is Survivor, which is probably less appropriate than either of the two shows you mentioned because of what <laughs> goes on. But I like, I mean, what I'm looking for on all of these shows is uh, shows that are, well, for, for my whole family to be watching them, I want there to be reasonable representation of women, which is super hard to find in any television anywhere. The great thing about reality shows like Survivor, pretty much 50% women always. Women are mostly treated equally in the show yeah. there's pretty much an equal chance that a lot of reality shows are like this this is a show where women are treated as equal contestants there's a 50 percent chance that a woman's going to win sometimes higher uh and they're shown to be competent and skilled at whatever it is the game they're playing supergirl obvious angle of like hey girls can be superheroes too and the flash i have n no knowledge about that show but like this is what i'm looking for and it's not like my only criteria but i wouldn't i, I you know i'm just i'm still trying to control their media in a way that is probably now pointless because they're exposed to the wider world where this is not the case but that's what i'm looking for in a family show and you know diversity if i can get that anywhere and it's not just a bunch of like uh, attractive white people in a show that's really hard to find so i'm always looking for something that, that does that and family friendly and nice and mm -hmm. looks like you know like all the good yeah. things i don't want to set the expectation too high but you know um, trying to think of other things like this. I mean, like it's funny to me how, like, and I've talked to Guy English about this, about how I, you know, wa watching Doctor Who for a while, my daughter was kind of scarred about Daleks, and he's like, oh, that's that's a that's a grand tradition, and you know, in the. Um, British protectorates to have children who are scarred by Daleks. But like to this day, I mean, like we had to stop watching the last episode because it got too, it did get too scary. Like Doctor Who is still considered a kids show, but like I think it's. I think there's a pretty good chance that one out of four episodes is going to have something pretty freaky in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's freaky in a way that's only freaky to kids. Like, we started my son on on, uh, on the, the new Doctor Who with Eccleston, and watching those episodes with him, like, I think he was okay with that. I think he's past the kind of age, but there's always... There's always something like a little bit creepy that you watch a little well, bit. The first too early episode, the not... autons are are pretty are pretty creepy. Yeah, I mean, you have to. It depends on if you're the age where you can go. Those mannequins look terrible. Like at a, at a certain point, they're not scary anymore just because the effects or whatever. Right. Um, but <laughs> Mickey, if you're Mickey getting sucked into a recycling bin, <laughs> yeah. But but uh, but if you're a certain age, all they have to do is do anything with sc that scary music playing in the background, and it, it scars you for life. So I don't know if there's any way to avoid that. Um, but I I mostly I mean. I don't know. Like my my daughters are Princess Mononoke really early, and there's a lot of a lot of crazily grim stuff in there. But she would request to see it again and again and again. So wow. I would let her, and she didn't have nightmares as far as I know. And 
I mean, she was more scared with uh, Castle in the Sky, which she called the robot movie for a long time, that she watched. And for the longest time, as soon as we got up to the robot part, that was too intense for her and she would turn it off. So she'd never seen the rest of the movie and she was scared of the robot. And so I said, we just should not watch that movie anymore. But eventually she came back to it. Did I scar her for life with that robot? Of all the things to be scarred by, I think that's a pretty good one. She Now, I don't, if I asked her about it, I think she would say, I was never scared of that robot, but she was. Um, so I will watch the game. I will see if a truck can pull up to your house for Supergirl. Can I mention in passing uh, what my daughter and I went to see in the theater this uh, past weekend? The Iron Giant. Iron Giant. It's a good Did movie. you go? Did you go? I, I did not. My kids have seen it several times. They don't like it as much as I do, unfortunately. Well, I want to hear, uh, mainly I want to hear what you think about the two new scenes. I heard about them, but I don't know, like, the content of them. Yeah, okay, well, I won't spoil you on it, because really, I think this is mostly a promotional thing to get ready for the big blowout Blu-ray release, but I got to tell you, man, it was really nice to see it on a big screen, but really to hear it. We talked, I think we, we were both on that incomparable, right? About Iron Giant? Was that? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, but like, you remember like when, in the restaurant scene, how you can hear all these conversations, like you could really hear all the conversations and it was great. It was so loud. Everything was, it was just, it really, that is another one where I'm really glad I got to see it on a big screen. But you know, we'll, let's table that until it's come out. Yeah, actually, one one last thing that I know you have I know I know you haven't seen that I'll just throw this out there. I watched The Leftovers season one, which is a very strange show that I can imagine appealing to very few people. I just happen to be one of them. I'm not here to defend that show. Really, but it, it, it did appeal to me in a strange, perverse way. And then season two started, and the first episode, season two, is just entirely bonkers. In a way that I can imagine appealing to nobody except for me. And I was like, I'm not going to say it's a great show, but I watch it and I'm like, you know what? Who likes this in the world except for maybe me? <laughs> uh-huh. It's super it's Damon, Damon Lindelof, huh? <laughs> I don't know if I... Like, no, he's the executive producer. I know, I know, but I, is that what it is? Because like Lost was not like this. Right. Boy, good as okay, the, say I, no more. I will, I, I will add I that to the no, queue. I don't, don't. I do not recommend you watch it. First okay. of all, you'd have to watch all of season one, which I guarantee you will not get through because you will like, who watches this? I just want to like... It, it is just... It is a downer. It is grim and depressing and like seemingly pointless, which is kind of the point of the show, which I think is like, don't make a show. It's like, it's like, I don't know if it's nihilistic. Anyway, yeah. Season one is season one. You're like, well, at least it kind of went somewhere. But boy, what a grim show that's such a downer and just so depressing and pessimistic and pointless. Uh, and then season two starts and you're like, seriously? Like, oh, anyway, I am. I am super impressed with the weirdness of the show. I do not recommend anyone watch it, but it, it does really? exist. I just wanted to put that out there. This, it, it, while you're watching regular television, this thing is going on on HBO. So, so you're saying to the listeners, if they're if they're sick of the standard fare and the CBS recycling machine, this is possibly one. If you really want something weird, maybe get this. It is, spin. yeah. It, I don't understand how it's been. How it's, it's like one of those shows that people are like. I don't like the shows where all the characters aren't likable and. Uh, and there's just depressing and bad things happen all the time. Like at least Breaking Bad, like, oh, bad things happen all the time, but I'm, I'm rooting for the characters. Nope. Like this just, why? It is, it is something else. Um, and, wow. I, and I think this is, yeah, I don't understand how it's still in the air. Who's watching it besides me? Anyway, uh, it's my little secret, secret pleasure and I want pleasure and I want to throw it out there. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Cloak a fantastic VPN service for Macs, iPhones, and iPads. You can learn more about Cloak right now by visiting getcloak.com slash reconcile. It is 2015, five years after the year we make contact, or 
were supposed to have made contact at any rate. And yet, even today, a huge percentage of our online communication isn't secured with protocols like HTTPS or TLS. And meanwhile, we find ourselves using our laptops, phones, and tablets more and more on the go on networks we do not trust. If you're at a hotel, a conference, or a coffee shop and don't know who runs the network or who might be listening in, these days, cellular networks seem to think it's a good idea to just inject tracking cookies into our web traffic like that's a normal thing. Cloak is a VPN service for Macs, iPhones, and iPads that has one and only one purpose, to keep you safe on untrusted networks. Cloak is a little indie software company based in Seattle, and they built this service because they thought VPNs were just too painful to use. Cloak is different. Simply tell it the networks that you trust. For example, we tend to trust our home and our office networks, and then Marvel as Cloak automatically secures you everywhere else. That's right, Cloak is a VPN you don't have to remember to use. As you'd expect from an indie company like Cloak, they work hard to make sure the user experience is great, from beautiful, simple design to great customer support when you need it. But better than simple, Cloak is also serious. For example, Cloak for Mac's overcloak feature shuts down your network access and those in-between times when you, you're connected to an untrusted network, but the full VPN tunnel isn't yet active, it's nearly space age. So while we may not be racing toward Jupiter to meet the monolith, at least, We've got a great solution for staying safe online right here on planet Earth, and that is Cloak. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, I use Cloak. This is a personal endorsement for Cloak. I really like it a lot. I cannot imagine getting onto a network I don't trust without Cloak. It just runs. It just goes. It is the best. Cloak is offering a full 20% off its subscription plans for listeners of this show. Please just go and visit getcloak.com slash reconcile to get started and stay safe online today. Please check them out. Our thanks to Cloak for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. All right, so uh, should we jump in? Yes, we should. This is, this is, I think, your nominated topic, although I have a lot of questions for you. Yeah, no, it's, this has been on the list for a long time, and we've touched on it here and there. And I, I feel like you have talked more about this topic on various podcasts over the years than I have. Uh, I, I know, I think... It was with some confidence, basically one thing about how you feel about this topic, and there's not much subtlety to it. Yeah, but I don't think you understand why. That's why I'm here. What's mm-hmm. the topic? The topic is travel, <laughs> as in moving yourself from one place to another, like over long distances. Not... Causing or allowing your body to be moved to a different part of the world yes. for reasons. Yes. Traveling without moving. No, that's different. Mm-hmm. Um so tr- you talk about travel all the time. You talk about uh, what you feel like is the proper behavior for people during travel, uh, your frustration with the people whose job it is to get you from place to place and how they deal with the mass of humanity that moves through their their systems of conveyance, whether it be airplanes or buses or just walking on the street or taking streetcars or people who drive in cars and all that mm-hmm. stuff. You've talked a lot about this. And I feel like your whole angle on travel is... It could be much better than it is. It is just a, an unending series of frustrations, and it's kind of nobody's fault, uh, you know, except for ours collectively, because all the incentives are set up for everyone to be miserable. Am I summarizing your your take on travel? Well, yeah, no, I, th- I think so. I think, I mean, just the 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 quick take on it is that, and, and again, a word I've used a lot, especially with regard to travel, is vulnerability. I think that travel. I'll speak for myself. Travel makes me feel vulnerable. Um, so much of every aspect of my life I usually have some control over, I now have to hand over to complete strangers with not a lot of agency on my part for being able to 
address anything that's not working out well, which is a, an abstract way of saying, well, you know, when I'm on the on the train and the driver starts driving crazy, like I don't have a way to change that. If people are like driving by the train and almost killing my kid with their car, that's just a thing I've got to deal with. If somebody gets onto the train and starts smoking weed or punching windows, well, that's just what happens on a train. There's all kinds of things where, you know, I'm not even that much of a homebody, but like, I feel like I realize that I'm a little bit of a homebody when I'm so much at the mercy of other people's um, whims and selfishness and like no amount of me trying to do the right thing has an effect. I realized that a long time ago, but you know, to the John Roderick and, and Merlin angle. Yeah. There's just the way that people do kind of behave like animals when they travel, I think because they feel vulnerable and they feel like there's nobody looking out for their interests. So there's a little bit of Thunderdome to this whole idea of like, well, I've got to get my bag up there. I've got to be the first in line. I want the newest Cinnabon, whatever it is. I think it brings out, um, whatever the opposite of our better angels is our worst demons. Yeah, I also see, not that I travel much for reasons we'll get into, but I also see a lot of the other thing where people learn how to hunker down for travel. Like they, it's like they, they, not that they go into their shells, but it's like you can just see them putting on a suit of armor and a set of walls and a set of headphones and just like pulling all their loose appendages into their shell virtually and, and uh, in reality, physically, and just enduring it like I'm going to sit here wordlessly waiting for my flight you know without complaint with a stony expression I'm going to shuffle onto the plane I'm going to get myself arranged in my seat I'm going to get up three times for the people in my row to go to the bathroom I'm going to go to the bathroom myself uh, and I'm just going to endure it and when it's over I will get off the plane and then you know like they 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 go into travel mode I think feel like people have a travel mode Hopefully that mode isn't like what you're talking about where they're like, I need to get my bag on the thing. Like if people are late or they're harried or whatever, most of the people I see traveling are in the grim determined travel mode. Or, or like, maybe a little bit withdrawn. Yeah. Like, like you, you, if, if you're normally talking to people and friendly, now it's like, now is not the time for that. I just need to concentrate on getting from point A to point B. But like, yeah, but I think you're also just, yeah, you're, you're describing something where it does cross over a little bit into what I was talking about though, where, okay, this is my seat. I've gotten my seat. I'm in my, I am in my correct seat. I have my seat up. I have my arms inside. I, where are your arms on the armrest? And my arms should be on this part of the armrest. And like what, what starts out as some kind of like junior high uh, level of civility, like then starts shading more into Lord of the Flies as you start to feel like other people, like you need that carapace. Like you need that thing that's going to protect you from all these people who are trying to, you know, get your wampum or whatever. <laughs> or like, you know, I, I, I want two, two distinct memories of the first time I ever flew in first class. My boss basically upgraded me for first classes in 1999 or 2000. And wow, you really can't go back. It's so fundamentally different. The first thing I remember was like, oh my God, this is so pleasant because of what you're describing. You don't feel defensive. It's not that you're exactly relaxed. It's just you feel kind of normal. You're sitting in a more normal chair around people who are acting normally and you have like the amenities that are normal. There's, there's not any deliberate uh, attempt to make you uncomfortable for reasons, which is what happens in coach. But the second thing I remember is a guy losing his shit over the fact that they were out of stake. So when they go around and they ask you what you want for your entree, and you know, I understand why, like he paid, maybe he paid $3,000 for that flight and he wants his damn steak. But at the same time, it was such a, like a first world thing where I was like, oh my God, you know, again, Louis CK, you're in a chair flying through the sky and you're mad because you don't get a filet. And that pretty much sums up first class. It's just full of, of people who are this close to being miserable. They just have a bigger chair. 
people get angry about stuff like that, it can be one of two things. One, the charitable one, like you're saying, is like, well, they paid a lot for this ticket and they really expected this thing. And, the, and you know, the, there's a little bit of like buyer's remorse or feel like they're they're not getting what they want. But the more much more likely thing, well, there's two more likely things. The second more likely thing is that person is really upset about something and it just found this outlet to come out, right? And the third one is this person gets upset about every slight that happens to them in life, whether it's in first class or not. So yes. I feel like those are, those are the two big ones. Either someone who is just always super angry when anything doesn't go his way. He's a big baby in real life and throws tantrums and is probably rich so he can get away with it, right? And the second one is it's a regular person who whose dog just died or is really worried that his wife is going to leave him <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that finds an outlet and no stake, right? That is much less likely because yep. who has that kind of event <laughs> Like, you know, who treats who treats strangers like that most of the time? I mean, like, you know, that's just it's odd. It's it is odd. Well, no, I, I feel like it's unlikely they, that, that he was having a super bad day in this family outlet. I find it much more likely that this person gets upset like that about everything. Mm-hmm. Like that is a very common occurrence to yeah. get very upset that they're out of plastic forks at the cafeteria and demand to see a manager or whatever. Like that's just their M.O. Yeah, but I agree. Your assessment, I think, is correct. I mean, just my 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 um, key word for travel is vulnerability. A lot of travel. And the pain of travel is easier to understand when you realize the anxiety that we feel about having so little control over what's happening right now. And as something John and I talk about a lot on the show with Roderick, um, that sense of helplessness about knowing if something is not going well that's critical to the trip, like how little I can, how little control I have over fixing it. And like that produces a certain amount of anxiety that makes it stressful for everybody. Even even if everything's going well, it's still a little stressful. Yeah, surprisingly, like I, I recognize all those things you're saying, but I have a general ex- acceptance before going into it that I'm entering an environment that that I don't control, um, and that it's just you know that's part of how I d- deal with travels. Like, look, this is hmm. there's nothing you know I've I've. I haven't had the nightmare stories that frequent travelers have, where you're like you're in a plane on the runway for six and a half hours and stuff like that. But I've had like the medium version of those where maybe you're in an airport for six hours with kids. You know, that's not, you know, it's better than being in and stuck in the plane. Maybe you're on the tarmac for an hour and a half, two hours, like just the mild version of not really bad ones. But during those situations, especially if I was by myself, if I was by myself, it's like, whatever. Like I knew this was going to happen. This is just something I have to endure. I'm not the type of person who would get increasingly angry. Uh, as you sit there, as some people do, like we've been on this runway for three and a half hours. Like I think frequent travelers realize that does nothing. And you just, you know, like if you're in that type of mode where you're just like slowly building steam to an explosion, mm-hmm. that's, that's bad. For I, I, I agree with you when it's, I mean, I, this doesn't exactly map to an X and Y axis, but I, I feel like I can say that if it's the two axes for me are like, like how many people are involved and what are the stakes? So if it's just me and the stakes are low, it's like, who cares, right? And then obviously at the other end, if like, if, if it means that missing this connection means I don't get to go to somebody's funeral and we have four members of our family traveling and you got a nurse and all that kind of stuff, obviously that's another end of the continuum. But the main thing is like, I think the real stress partly comes out of like, like having to make a connecting flight. And then that sense of like, okay, are they going to cancel this? Do I need to make other arrangements? Is this going to become like three times more expensive than I expected just to get what I had already been promised? That, that to me becomes a source of anxiety. But I agree with you. Like when I flew to um, Portland for this uh, thing I went to not too long ago, um, the plane was, it was, I mean, there it, it was a shit show. The whole thing was just like the, 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 basically the, it was delayed for like about three hours, which doesn't seem like a big deal until you realize that like 
there's no like real sense of like, oh, well, this is going to be fine in X minutes. It's just that on and on and on thing. But I was like, you know what? I'm here with some friends. I'm hanging out. Worst thing that happens is I get a little bit of traffic coming into town. But I agree with you. If it's just you and the stakes are low, you should be able to, as an adult, you should be able to talk yourself off the ledge. Even if the stakes are high, like even if the whole family's there and run away to your funeral and so on and so forth, I myself wouldn't uh, be getting angry because again, I'm totally accepting of like, Things like this happen. It's nothing you can do about it. Getting angry is not going to do anything about it. But the problem is the other people you're with, especially kids, may not be of that opinion or people who are not as accepting of the fact that uh, it could, you know, no matter how important, just to use like a traffic, you know, the like car traffic, no matter how important it is that you get to an important meeting at work uh, on time, if there is a big accident on the road, there's nothing you can do about that. Like, there's no sense mm-hmm. in getting angry. It's like, well, I wouldn't be angry if I didn't have that super important meeting to get to, but I do, and now I'm angry. It's like, what's? Well, it doesn't matter. They're, like, un- the they're world, unrelated. The, they're totally the, unrelated. The world doesn't care what meeting you have. Like, it is what it is. If there's nothing you can do about it, nothing you can do about it. It's bad luck. It's a bummer. It happens to everybody. Could you have left early to avoid it? Maybe. How early do you want to be to things? Like, you just, <laughs> this is like, this is like, you know, and so I personally am pretty chill for the most part about unless i'm angry about something else and then it's just like oh this was the outlet again if something else is going bad and you're not really about angry about the traffic and something you know but anyway the transference thing but normally i'm pretty chill about it but if you're in a group with a bunch of people who aren't them being upset ruins your day because now you don't want them to be upset and how you deal with that and yeah but uh, it yeah, all doesn't it also i mean not to drag this out but like doesn't it when you're dealing with other people or family in particular what's the phrase i want to use it exposes the seams Right. So like when everything's functioning great and everybody's happy and we're all rested and we've eaten and we're not sick and our hands are clean and everything's going fine. Like you don't see the seams as much. It's just that the seams start to show when somebody's hungry or somebody's sick or let's be honest, somebody's mad at their spouse because they should have taken care of this and thought about this earlier. You forgot the ticket. You're the reason we're going to be late for the funeral. Those are the kinds of things where suddenly like the travel becomes the 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 seam exposer do you know what i mean though it's yeah, like it, no totally yeah, yeah. like they, because again if other people are angry what they they can there's two things that happen they could be angry at you and it could be justified because you did forget the tickets or it could be unjustified and that just people are looking it's for someone to blame kids will be unjustly angry at you no matter what because they're always angry at you because yeah, everything the bad that happens is your fault because uh-huh. you're the only authority figure for them to blame <laughs> and spouses you know it's 50 50 but the other thing that can happen is uh, one spouse can look to the other uh, or kids can look to either one of, of their parents to fix whatever the problem is. And if the problem is not fixable and there's an expectation, you know, and usually an unreasonable expectation that it should be fixed, like, you know, daddy, why, why can't you make the plane take off? Like, well, you know, try explaining that, right? Or your wife saying, if we don't get our connection flight, you know, we have to get our connection flight. We have to make sure you do. And they, if, if your wife keeps telling you that, it's like, I understand the urgency, but by you repeatedly telling me this, it makes me feel like you think that I need to do something to change it. And I'm not entirely sure what sitting in my seat here I can do to make sure that we make the connection. Well, you could you could get on the phone and spend five thousand dollars on tickets we might not well, use. If but this if goes you're through. on, yeah, but if you're on the plan, you know, you know what I mean. Like yeah, that's yeah, always yeah. the question: is like, well, what's the action item here? And that becomes, oh, now we're arguing about like what we need to do about it because one person has an expectation, the other person needs to fix it, right? Um, and so that can be stressful as well. But like. Yeah, being even if it's not upsetting to you personally, 
it's upsetting. Believe me, it's upsetting to people around you. And then if you're related to those people or care how those people feel or those people have expectations of you or you have expectations of them, then it becomes miserable. It's any, like any other high stress situation, you know, right. it's you're 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 you're, you're uh, voluntarily inducing what could potentially be a very high stress situation. Yeah, but let's let's uh, it, it, it occurs to me that just in uh, in hearing you talk about things just behind the scenes stuff. And you've mentioned this, I think, overtly on the show that you're not a you're not a big fan of travel just in general, though, right? Like you don't even like traveling. You don't. You would prefer not to travel, even by yourself, right? Yeah, my my personal hangups in travel are different than you might imagine. All this stuff you're talking about is so is, interested. Is, is the stuff that that I you know that I feel like I'm okay with. So I have there's a couple aspects of my you call it travel phobia, travel aversion. It's all tied into my general personality. The first one is the pra- get the practical stuff out of the way. I get motion sick very easily. Okay. Um, and so this has many effects. One, no one likes to be motion sick. And you, I, you don't under, like my aversion to motion sickness is just massive. And I try to like, get people. You get, you get a little queasy or you get like legitimately sick? Like I discovered that I was a person who gets motion sick in fifth grade when I went on a whale watch. And like, just was just miserable the entire time and puked my brains out. Right, that was my that was my record for a number of times vomiting for many many years. I broke it recently in my thirties. I crushed I crushed it actually. <laughs> uh, great flu, but anyway, I don't. Uh, for people who have ever had a, a you know uh, like they call a stomach bug or whatever, where you're just constantly puking your guts out, that's just miserable. You just you just want it to, to stop, right? Like I I don't you know maybe it's just me, but like a lot of people's like that's. You feel like it's not even worth go. Uh, you just wish you could fall asleep or something. It's just not even worth living if you're just going to constantly feel like this and constantly be throwing up. Right? It's just super miserable. It's like for, it is the most sort of like common thing that, that regular healthy people get. I think regular healthy people occasionally get a stomach bug. Right? For most people, this is the worst common, not really life threatening, not really serious kind of uh, ailment they're going to get. We're it'll 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 really take you down and talk about loss of power or agency. You just you have this overwhelming feeling that it's just it's so awful to know that not only is this just an, as you say miserable. It's almost the definition of miserable. Um, but that you're pretty guaranteed that you don't have any control over how long this is going to go on. There's yeah, nothing you, just, you can do you to stop it. it. You, it well, you're engulfed. Often, you're you're out, like engulfed in it. It like takes you over. Yeah, and there's things you have to do when you're an adult. You know, you have to keep yourself hydrated, which are just just fueling the thing there. You wish you could just fall asleep and wake up when it's over. If you're lucky, it's one of those like one and done things where you just like food poisoning and and you could up and then you fall asleep and you wake up and you're fine. If you're unlucky, you will not be getting any sleep. You will spend the entire night like so. It's miserable. Everyone knows that feeling. I think is is a common right. Mm-hmm. Motion sickness is uh, if you get motion sick. Like if, if you were, you know, on a whale watch, something like that, there is pretty much no way that I can go on a whale watch, like out on the, the Atlantic Ocean and not get that feeling. So to voluntarily walk onto a boat knowing this is basically asking somebody, hey, I have a button you can press. And if you press that button, you are in for X number of hours of feeling that way. Remember that thing? You won't be able to, to stop it. You know, it's not going to stop the entire time you're on the boat because it's going to be like a four hour trip and the boat's not turning around. So enjoy. Would you voluntarily get on the boat? Nobody would do it. Like mm-hmm. nobody would volunteer. I, I try to compare it to like, Here, uh, I'll go on this boat with you. If the entire time we're on the boat, you take a shot of Ipecac every five minutes. Or like get a shot every couple of minutes. Yeah. yeah not a <laughs> shot. Like you take a shot, uh, you know. Oh, whatever. something that will literally make you yeah. experience it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be doing it. So do you want to do it? And they're like, oh, why would I ever do that? It's like, why would I ever get on that boat? Like, it's not, you know. Mm-hmm. So so that's motion sickness, right? Now, the, the having motion sickness 
you learn to deal with it in, in certain ways, right? So I, th having that experience made me learn a lot about motion sickness, learn what I can and can't do on different moving vehicles and how to avoid it. Certain things you just avoid entirely. Boats on rough waters, just not going to happen. I will just not do that. Um, boats of any kind, avoid if possible. Would I ever go on a cruise? No. These people say, oh, cruise, cruise ship, it's big. It doesn't move around a little you bit. You get used but, to it. <laughs> right. But some people do get second cruise ships. So it, I'm like, if it's possible to get second cruise ships, I am a candidate for that to happen. And I don't want that to happen. I wouldn't yeah. want to go on a cruise anyway. So cruise ships are out entirely. Uh, being in cars. When I'm driving the car myself, I have control over, you know, looking out the front window is great. Driving the car is great. But even driving the car yourself, if it's like on a wavy road and you're driving too aggressively, I can make myself sick driving the car. But you can just slow down. Like, I'm driving the car. I can I can pull over and stop. I can go to a gas station. Like, I can, you know, I'm not going to make myself sick driving the car. So that right. is a feeling of safety that I can deal with. Do you get car, sit, do you get, uh, car sick in the back seat? All right. So now if I'm not driving the car, I need to be looking out the front window or as close to the front as possible. Because of the parallax. Uh, and I need to concentrate. My working theory of this, which may or may not be scientifically accurate, but is the model I use to to deal with this, is if what my eyes are seeing and what my inner ear is feeling disagree, I get motion sick. And that I think model, it's, I think it's pretty simple. I think it's. I mean, my grandmother had this, and I remember first reading about this. I don't know if I'm using the right word, parallax, but you've got the frame. Like when you're in the back seat, you grok the windshield as a frame that is in your frame of reference, and everything outside is moving. And it's that it's that discontinuity between the frame being still to your frame of reference versus everything on the road moving that sets off that that ver whatever that vertigo like feeling that that tells you something is wrong here. I'm in motion, like expel all contents. See, I don't have I actually use the window frame to uh, to my advantage in that because I like the reason you want to be looking out the front window is because most of the motion that cars do is uh, side to side and up and down. Because most cars don't accelerate rapidly or decelerate rapidly if a sane person is driving them, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you want to be looking at the front window. And what you want to see is when you feel yourself lurch up or down or left or right, you want to see out the window that the landscape is lurching up or down oh, or left or right. Uh, if you look at the side window, you lose a lot of the, the motion. You know, it's better than not looking at any window, but you lose a lot of the motion. You don't get the you don't get all angles of it because you're not moving. When you move side to side, you don't notice that you got a little bit closer to the edge of the road and back unless you're looking down at the road but that's not good anyway <laughs> so i have to look out the front-ish window or the front on an angle right so if i'm in the back seat i'm constantly peering for a sight line through the headrest or whatever out the front window out the window on the corner i can't which means i can't look at the people who are in the back seat and talk to them uh, it means i can't read in a car uh, i can't play video right. games in a car right. i can't watch videos uh, i can't do any of that stuff right which is fine you know i deal with it that way planes Planes can be no problem. You've all been on flights where it's just not bumpy at all. You take off, you land, it's fine, right? Planes, I can't look out the front window, can I? All I've got is to shove my head into the little porthole in the side window and try to get an angle out the front. I also need to be able to see something in a plane. I need to see the horizon, stars, moon, something that I can show that when the plane moves, I see the plane or the wingtip or something moving against the fixed horizon or the whatever. Yeah. So if I'm in a big cloud or it's entirely night and I can't see any of the stars, that's your, bad. Your it brain might, needs something plane. to account for the motion and you need a fixed point to focus on in order to provide that then, context. It doesn't need to be a fixed point. It just needs to be something that when the plane moves, I see the horizon is perfect. Like mm -hmm. I use that in boats too. Like, you know, when I'm like a ferry or some other big boat that I go on, like you, you, when the boat goes up i want to see you know again using the window frame i want to see the horizon more move towards the window frame it's not, there's only a limit to what this can do at a certain point like you're gonna get sick no matter what right so if there's huge turbulence or the plane is bouncing up and down a lot like 
I can endure that for maybe 30 minutes before I, I puke my guts up. I'm really oh, good at, God, at, at, at not puking at this point. Right? I'm, re- I'm, I'm, I'm really good at not doing it. I'm really good. Like, I have a lot of practice. In fact, I'm, in high school, I went on a trip to uh, Canada. I went to Newfoundland and went out on a dinky little boat on the North Atlantic Ocean next to an iceberg. Uh, and that is the, the closest I've ever come to puking and not puked. <laughs> it was extremely difficult. A, a lot of the key is like the amount of time. It's like, I feel like I can endure this for 45 minutes for one hour. And then after that, I'm just going to be spent because I will have used all my skills and all my powers, right? Mm. To, to keep everything down. <laughs> and at a certain point, you lose the battle uh, against it. Uh, so planes, planes, I'm ro- every time so I stop into a plane. You're familiar with dry, dry heaves. You've gotten to dry heaves before? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so for for uh, for planes, it's a roll of the dice. Most plane flights, like takeoff and landing, are short. You hope, right? You don't do a lot of circling. You hope. Uh, in the flight, turbulence. You hope is brief, and not like these nightmare stories where it's like it's a two-hour flight and it was turbulent the whole time. I, I you know, because again, when you're on a plane, it's just like being on a boat. What are you going to do? They can't pull over. Like it's not, there's nothing that can be done. You either just have to basically like cross your fingers, hope for a smooth flight, hope for a nice, calm, short land. Like landing doesn't even have to be calm. It just needs to be short. Like I can endure a 10, 15 minute, any kind of landing. I can make it through. But if it's like now we're going to have to circle the airport for 10 minutes as we bounce around. Like I think I circled LaGuardia for maybe 35, 40 minutes bouncing up and down like a roller coaster the entire time. At least, you know, thank goodness for small favors. It was a clear night. And I could see everything, so I had something to go on. But like, I was like, "This plane Ugh. needs to get down soon," uh, you know. But most of my luck with with plane flights recently. And the thing about long plane flights, like going to San Francisco, is remember, I can't watch the TV. I have to turn it off in front of me. I can't watch a movie. Right. I can't read a book. Oh, I can't no. look at a magazine. I can't type email. I can't like. So, so all really, all, all you can do is nothing, or think about how you're almost losing it. Not well, podcasts and music. Podcasts and music okay. are the two things I can do because I can listen to things, but I have to be staring at which means I can't even hold a reasonable conversation with the person next to me unless they enjoy talking to the back of my head, which is really hard to do on a plane <laughs> where nobody can hear anybody. If I have to tend to kids, I have to work that in time slicing between, you know, staring out the window uh, and hope that my kids don't inherit this because then I'm going to have two of us who are like that and you're going to have to deal with this. So these are just the plain old practical concerns. And for all this that I said, you know, I go on a boat every single year. I take the ferry to Long Island, right? It's a big boat. I pick the biggest boat. I pick a nice day. I hope that it's calm. I've been doing it for years. I've had good luck. Like, you know, you're just, just rolling the dice. I drive everywhere. I take long car trips. I've driven across the country. I've driven up and down the East Coast. Uh, you know, I've done all those things. I fly to San Francisco now every year. That's my longest plane flight. I endure six hours of staring out the window, listening to podcasts and, you know, not talking to anybody, which is, you know, fine with me anyway mm-hmm. um it, i'm jealous of the people who get to watch movies i would like to catch up on movies or tv shows on the plane that would sound like great fun to me but i can't um and so it's more boring and miserable to like uh, uh, you know, try this just on your next six hour flight pretend you can't read anything use your computer or watch a video of any kind and see how, you know podcasts are great we all love podcasts but at a certain point you're like everyone else around you is watching videos on their ipods and ipads you have an ipod and ipad it's filled with movies but you can't watch it and you make the mistake like the first time i flew to denver i'm like you know what this is super smooth plane flight i'm gonna watch the in-flight movie i lasted 45 minutes and i was sick for the rest of the the plane oh, flight i was no. like that was it stupid like sometimes you think this is silly this is all in your head isn't it i'm fine no like i test it every once in a while and it have, you, have you tried like anything like dramamine or the yeah. ear thing or the wrist thing any of that work Dramamine, uh, the wrist things do nothing for me. Dramamine, uh, 
solves the problem by making me insane <laughs> by making me out of my mind like i like i mean i have hallucinations like just, oh you know. no and so i i would rather be basically sober staring out the window than as loopy as drowning me and make it does solve the 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 motion segment. well i don't know if it solves it because the few times i've taken it it's been a smooth flight anyway i'm like you know what i think it would have been fine but seriously i have like auditory hallucinations like it's not it does not sit well with me so that's one way to solve the problem but i don't auditory hallucinations like yeah where you're just like hearing things that aren't oh, there no. and just like having crazy thoughts in your mind like you know strange repeating thought drowning does not but, but I guess that that's one solution. I mean, I suppose I could take like a sleeping pill and like knock me <laughs> but out. But it's or it's a kind but, of whack-a-mole, right? Like what, the trade-off for that is is yeah, pretty severe. I, and and like I'm good. At, I'm good at these things now. Like I know what it takes to, to do what has to be done. I can I can fend things off for a pretty long time. I think I'm probably better than the average person because the average person who d- thinks they don't get motion sick, oh, I never get motion sick, and then they're on a really turbulent flight and they're not prepped for it. They're going to get sick before I do because the entire time I've been prepping for that. I've been looking out the window the whole time. You've been watching the in-flight movie thinking you're going to be fine. Oh, there's just little bumps here and there because it comes on all of a sudden. Like you think you're fine and you're like, you know what? I don't feel oh, so good. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and especially if you don't know why you don't feel it, you keep watching the movie. Like they don't have the tools to, you know, this is the thing I talk about with motion sickness. One of my favorite things about motion sickness is how people believe it's a character flaw, especially in men. Like if you were just tougher. Like, right, you know right, the, right. that is totally a, a, like you were just k- a kids get person. autism because their moms were too cold or something right or but you know but this is like a, a, a masculinity or whatever type thing it's like if you were just a tougher person you wouldn't have this affliction it's a, it's, a, it's like right. saying if you were just tougher you wouldn't be allergic to almonds right like, <laughs> there's nothing like timmy's frail he's allergic to almonds sure <laughs> look know, at him like, he's just he's just a frail child but you know it's, it's like a, it's like a failure of character the same way that people used to think that you know if you had any kind of physical ailment it was like you know the, the the God has not smiled on you. It was like it was it was a judgment from the heavens. Yeah, it, it were, re- re- like reflects a lack of character. Yeah, you were an evil person. You, oh, you have a limp. Well, you know, you're obviously an evil person, not pure like the people who walk upright all the time, right? So anyway, there's there's a lot of that hanging over for especially for motion sickness because and people will say as a point of pride, well, I don't get motion sick. Um, and point of fact, <laughs> that's like saying I haven't died of cancer. Right? No, no, everybody. <laughs> As far as I've been able to determine from everything I've seen in my entire life, everybody gets motion sick. It's only a matter of what it takes. Um, and I think this is borne out by basically, if you take someone who says they don't get motion sick, you can fairly easily make a device that makes everybody get motion sick. Mythbusters has done it. Done it uh, you know, NASA and all these other things do it. Yeah. Jet fighter pilots. Uh, who you know who fly you know jet jet planes nine g's they get sick they throw up not in when they're normal work but in like you can put them in something that makes them sick well that's that would be the point of nasa training i'm imagining it's like not whether you get sick but when you get sick we need to know what your threshold is and what your vulnerability yeah, i mean are. those people obviously have incredibly high thresholds but like the, 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 have you seen the Mythbusters machine that they use to test motion sickness because basically they need for the experiments and the purposes of the show we need to make you sick uh, right, right, that's sure. not the point of this experiment. We just need a device to make you sick. You're like, oh, this must be an incredibly fiendish device. And the device they use is so prosaic that what I'm is sure it? Mo- well, it is a, like an Office Depot chair that rotates really, really slowly with you sitting in it, right? And then uh, you have around your head a rig with a tennis ball in front of you and a tennis ball to your left and a tennis ball to your right, maybe six inches away. And while the chair rotates very slowly, you tap your head to the tennis ball in front, you tap your head to the tennis ball on the left, you tap your head to the tennis ball to your right, and you just keep repeating that while the chair rotates. Everybody gets sick. It's just oh a matter of time. Oh my God, really? Everything is, it's slow. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, like people don't realize how how vulnerable they are to this. Like, cause you know, and I've heard a lot of theories for, you know, what purpose does motion sickness serve? So more of that, you know, 
sounding uh, seemingly bs sounding uh, evolutionary biology stuff yeah, but careful but in light but but you know i i welcome better theories but one of the theories that i've heard that makes some vague sense to me even though that doesn't mean that it's true at all um is that if you start having a disagreement between what your eyes see and what your inner ear feels it's possible that you ate something that was poison uh, and the people who did not have the reaction of puking their guts out when they started to feel something that their eyes didn't agree with died from the poison at a slightly higher rate than the people who really? did puke their guts out. I would, I would guess so, it has something deep down to do with depth perception, like the tests from like in cognitive psych where you have a baby crawl over tiles that are big, and then they get up to a point where there's tiles that are small, and the baby won't keep crawling because they think it visually looks like it's further away. Yeah, but that's not that's not what it is with motion sickness. It's not like some sort of it's not like vertigo, which is a different thing that I don't experience, and the, all the other sort of like things that have to do with the visual system. This is this is an inner ear thing more than a okay. visual thing, and so I mean, yeah, again, there's lots of theories you can make up that sound plausible. This one sounds plausible because it's like you know what, uh, uh, ancient man probably did accidentally eat a lot of things that were poison, <laughs> uh, and they can make you start to sort of get dizzy and you know uh, have have a disconnect between what you like. I feel like the room is spinning, or not the room. I feel like the cave is spinning, but the cave is not spinning. And, you know, if uh, the few people who had the, you know, what uh, their bodies were made, uh, set up in, in a way that they uh, puked their guts out when that happened, they had a slightly higher chance of living through the poison because you get it out of your system. The ones who are like, I don't feel sick at all, they just died from the poison. And that is a silly, sort of very simple possible explanation. But uh, anyway, like I'm always looking for like trying to come up with a reasonable explanation of like why is it that we're like this why do we have these things this way and you can you know anyway well I, I i just want to clarify i think you've made your case uh for a big primary part of this like i totally understand i did not know that i would not want to travel either if i felt that way yeah you don't want to travel anyway so that is just the simple practical reason and for the most part the practical reason doesn't deter me like i know it's there i deal with it uh it's not the main reason why I hate travel, believe it or not, even though I've described all these things because, you know, I, hmm. I get through it and like I haven't been, you know, physically sick. I haven't, I haven't been thrown up traveling in a very long time. I've been very close to that, but I'm really good at not doing it at this point because I take all the precautions. I know what needs to be done. Right. But that I put that aside. That That's the only thing that does is it keeps me off of boats. Like I just will not go on boats for the most part unless it's like clear that it's just going to be short, finite very flat water like the, the ferry to long island it's, i'm taking a risk every time i do it it could be a really rough day but i try to go like on sunny days in the summer and i always pick the biggest boat and it's a short period of time and i feel like even if it was super rough i could endure it and even if i can't i'm well accustomed to puking over the side of boats so i would be fine <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so it, what's it, what's what's the big one so the big one is my general travel version is my it's it's part of my introversion but it's like it's kind of like you've read the hobbit right Everyone has read The Hobbit? No. You haven't read The Hobbit? No. How are you even on this show with me? I don't know. I'm sorry. Roderick has read The Hobbit. I'm he's sure. read it. He's read The Cimmerillion, I think. I'm <sighs> how, really sorry. How have you not read The Hobbit? He's, uh, he's in the Shire, and uh, there's, uh, there's the, the Magneto comes have to town. Have you seen the Ralph Bakshi animated thing? No, I do. Rem I remember that being out. Mm, I can uh, watch that. I can watch that tonight. I can watch, you know, at least half no, of it. No, don't, don't. It's not. And anyway, uh, uh, the, the, he has to leave the Shire because he's got to go find the ring. All right. So part of the Hobbit culture 
is that, 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 that they delve <laughs> the, into the culture or, of hobbits or the culture around people who read the hobbit the culture of hobbits like in in the story the, the hobbits are people who like they're, the culture they're, of hobbits they're they're small why do they have an irish accent doesn't say that they're irish anyway <laughs> they, they they're small they live in their their little village. They they're, got hairy feet. They, they like to eat and drink. Yeah, they, li- and, they like fireworks. I know they like fireworks. Right, they like to eat and drink. They're farmers. Uh, they uh, round doors. They, they don't have adventures. Right. They're they're respectable people. Just stay at home and stay in their town. They don't mm-hmm. go off into the wider world and do stuff like that. The people who do do that are exceptional within the hobbits and what the hobbits like more I remember than that anything. from the movie I remember it's a big deal when uh, was it Ian Holm like when, when he's got to leave I remember it's a really big deal because any this is the disappearing act at his birthday party that's a huge deal because hobbits don't do this kind of thing right yeah and I mean it's it's gone into much more in the books obviously but like the uh, the things that hobbits like are they like to just be at home near a fire with some good food and some friends and cozy and like that is uh, that is kind of their big ammo like it's it's you know it's typical literary device to paint an entire race of beings as if oh they all like this right but that is the culture of of (laughs) if you said that about mexican people (laughs) well you know they they like to be at home and sleep they all have hair on their feet anyway (laughs) this episode of reconcilable differences is brought to you in part by andrew carroll of NCH Tax and Wealth. You can learn more about Andrew right now by visiting cpaandrew.com slash relay. That's cpaandrew, one word, dot com slash relay. This is a simple ad about a difficult thing. Working for yourself and paying taxes can be a nightmare. Trying to understand how to get all the paperwork and tax stuff in place is the last thing you want to have to deal with, especially when you're trying to just make the thing you want to make. And it really is easy to pay way too much. Maybe you're a freelancer or you have dreams of being an independent content creator, or you're just tired of trying to deal with all this tax nonsense. Well, this message is for you. Andrew Carroll, CPA of NCH Tax and Wealth, is a big fan of all the great shows. And he's also, turns out, Relay FM's actual accountant. So you know he's good people. He has the solution. He's written a new ebook called The Freelancer's Guide to Escaping Taxes. It's all about how to understand what you need to do to make sure you're getting efficient and effective with how you deal with taxes and getting things in place properly to avoid issues down the line. It will make sure you pay as little tax as possible. Andrew believes that business should be simple, so he's made this free guide for people who want to learn how to make their freelance tax life easier. In a nutshell, it breaks down how to simply and legally reduce your taxes with step-by-step instructions that anyone can follow. Andrew can also help with almost anything related to business, taxes or investments. You got to check this guy out. If you're a freelancer, you need to grab this book right now. You go to cpaandrew.com slash relay. And you can also follow uh, Andrew on the Twitter as at cpaandrew. Our thanks to Andrew Carroll for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. But that's the culture of Hobbit, and that's why the characters in the book, Bilbo and Frodo, are both exceptional, and their relatives are slump mode exceptional, and they were the ones, like, one of them even rode a, a regular horse, you know, all these sorts of things you hear about, the, you know, but the, they, they talk about it amongst themselves as, like, we here, you know, I would never go out and do that. I'm just, I want to tend to my farm, and I want to have my wife and my kids and stay snug in my little hobbit hole and all that stuff. That entire thing, that entire sort of M.O., that is a good description of what I would like to. I am very much like a hobbit. If given the choice, I would. I like all those things. I like to you, stay at uh, home. You just I like blew, to be, blew my mind a little bit. I I get it now. I, I you know th- th- those are and I think this is true of a lot of introverts because what are the advantages? What are what are the attributes of all those things that we say that hobbits like? Oh, they like to just be you know at home. 
by their fire with good food and people. Uh, and it's basically like things that you already know and are comfortable with. You know your own house. You're comfortable in your own house. You like physical comforts. You don't like to be uncomfortable. You don't like to be too hot or too cold in a hard chair that's uncomfortable for you. Not, you know, walking for a long time. All the things that are that are potentially disturbing. You want to have people around you who you know who you're comfortable with. Your, your, your pets, your family, your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to have a feeling of safety. The opposite of feeling vulnerable that you were talking about with traveling. I'm not vulnerable. I'm in my house. I'm by my fire. I've got my stuff. I Maybe I just had some good food. I, uh, how, why do I have my good food? Because I know what food I like and I know where I can get it around my house and I plan for it and I have it and I eat it. It's the opposite of travel, right? Hmm. So I have that feeling in general, like if given the choice of like some people are like, oh, I want to go out and I want to see the world and I, you know, or I want, we need to go out and we need to do something. I would much rather go in. And this is, is a part of introverts and like, you know, it, not meeting new people, not having to be in uncomfortable situations to just be with people who you know, who you're comfortable with in a place that you know that you're comfortable with. And the extension of that is the extreme feelings of anxiety about not knowing when am I going to get where I'm going? When I get there, is everything going to be the way it's supposed to be? What if I get delayed? Where am I going to stay tonight? Where am I going to stay the next night? How is this, how is this going to affect my trip? Like not knowing how things are going to be. Who's driving there? How am I getting there? How is, when I get there, is everything going to be set up? Am I sure I have the reservation? What if I forgot my money? What if I didn't do this? What if I didn't like uh-huh. that sort of, sort of travel anxiety? I don't have that like in the real anxiety where people like panic attack. It's just like that's in the back of my mind and i you know all the things about travel the uncertainty about travel the not knowing and to the degree that like it's like well don't you enjoy you know going to new places and seeing new things kind of yeah like i don't i don't dislike seeing the new things and it's like it's like like, you know the thing is you sound like a a karma suck but if you say like well you know it's it's not bad yeah sure it's it's okay to see new things but i'm with you i don't i don't have wanderlust like i will i don't know i may just never make it to paris and I honestly, I don't lose a wink of sleep about that. I know I'm supposed to feel bad about that, but I, 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 I'm more like in this way than you might imagine. Yeah. And the thing is, Paris, like foreign countries is even worse because then you go into a place where you can't speak the language. So you're even more anxious about how am I going to make sure, like what you're trying to look for is to recreate a place where like, all right, I know where I'm staying tonight. I know where everything is. I know I haven't locked myself out of my room. I know how to get to the place. I know what we're doing the next day. I know where we're eating. I know where I'm going to put my stuff. I know how I'm going to get my bags from point A to point B. I'm like all that stuff is so much harder when you can't speak the language. And then you're nervous about everything that you're going to do. Right. Um, and people think this is this big crippling thing or whatever, but it's not mostly because I understand that it's going on and I can think about it in a sane way. And, this is, and, and is this an application of the rational mind? Totally. A hundred percent. Right. Okay. So, you know, like I can, it sounds bad to say this, but I can basically endure any of these things basically without complaint and without event. And it seems like if you, if you saw me just take my entire family to Disney world for a 10 day vacation, it would be like, no, you know, that wasn't not a big deal. Like, so you, seem... you flew from greater Boston to Orlando. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then we went to, uh, went to, what do you call it? Uh, the place with the Harry Potter stuff, uh, Universal M- Studios, <laughs> you know, Universal Studios. Okay. S- separate thing. Went to Universal for like three days and Disney That was, for that was a days. very obscure Casey List joke. Um, but you went to, so Universal That's Hollywood the... Studios used to be MGM, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, uh, the Harry Potter has the, has the, air, uh, the, Oh my God, Diagon Alley and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, oh, so that we, looks that looks so fun. So we went there for three days. We went for Disney for seven days. That's something I would never have chosen to do on my own because it would be like I want to minimize the number of like 
state change. It's like, fine, you're going to have a flight. You're going to go there. You're going to get from the, the airport to the place you're staying. Once you get checked in, why would you ever check out and go someplace else? Well, you got to check out to go someplace else because we're going to spend three days here and seven days there. Like, that's why I always take direct flights. I never want to change flights. If yeah. I go someplace, I want to get to the place I'm going, stay there, settle in. I want to get back to that comfort. I want to build a new comfort situation there where I know where everything is. and I know what everything's going to do. I know what it's going to be like, you know, and then th that's what I'm trying to get back to. Um, but sometimes you just can't, right? Like the first time I went to WWDC, I'd never been to the West Coast before. I'd never traveled on a plane flight that long before. Like, and the way I dealt with all of the things that were uncertainties, I don't think I'd ever been anywhere like on my own before. Like I just traveled by myself. I didn't come to think of it. I was like with my wife or something or with my parents or with someone else that I'm uh, traveling with. Mm -hmm. Um, you just deal with the it's like well i'm slightly obsessive planner and i always you know make sure i get everywhere early but the first wwc trip had like uh, planning of like the d-day invasion right and so by the fifth <laughs> one it's kind of like uh, you know so much so that i didn't even correctly look at the time of my flight the last time i went so i'm getting a little, maybe a little bit too casual about it right? right um but because i'm going back to the same place like if they change wwc to be in a different city then it would be much more a stressful experience for me. it's like well i don't know that city right. i don't know anything about that i don't know how i'm going to get from place to place now well, I gotta, you, 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 know. you know you've survived this right right and, and, and i'm kind of used to it and you know whatever anyway so but that is the, probably the main reason why, like if someone says wouldn't you like to go to paris or london or whatever first i think of the travel aspect of it and the potential motion sickness and boredom and, and ordeal of travel. And then I think of when I get there, will I be able to enjoy it? Or will I spend the entire time worrying about how I'm going to get from the airport to the hotel and how I'm going to make sure the hotel actually has my reservation. It's kind of like, you know, the going into class in your underwear or whatever yeah. those dreams you have, the idea that you're going to show up and they're like, we have no reservation for you. We have no idea who you are. And then you have to, uh, you have a bunch of bags and a bunch of things. And you're in a, a city. Imagine you're in a city where you don't speak the language. You don't know where you're going to say, this is Roderick's life. Basically. Like he, apparently he thrives on this but it's like my nightmare of just being like well yeah showing up and not having knowing where you're gonna go or what you're gonna do and just like well you know i'll figure it out like i think that makes him yeah that makes he thrive like you say he thrives in those but you're also you for me you're getting into where a lot of the uh the difficult part comes from as as i become more aware over time that i have um that I am an anxious person to the point where I, I should probably get it looked at. And like, not only am I anxious, but I've realized that left to my own devices, I will, to use a kind of ugly word, I will catastrophize. Like I will mentally somehow come up with the worst conceivable thing that could happen in this situation. Not the worst. I mean, it's not like I'm gonna be torn apart by wolves, you know, while I'm waiting for the plane. But like, but I will, in the especially in the week or two leading up to a flight, I will, um, I don't know, not not consciously or not uh, deliberately, but I will find myself ruminating on all these things that could go wrong. A lot of it is, is stuff that's happened once or twice ever, but stuff like you travel, you use your card to check in, and you get dinged on the card because you're traveling, and now your credit card company is confused that you're somewhere besides where you are. I live in constant fear of that happening. When I refill my Muni card in San Francisco, I get nervous running my card because, and like the worst thing that would happen is I'd use a different card, but like I don't know why, but that I get really consumed with that. And then for me, the funny thing is when it gets to like by the day or so before that happens. And especially like the day of, uh, this is where the ADD kicks in because now I think enough dopamine is produced by that actual thing about to happen that I, I become not more calm, but less freaked out. And by the time I'm on my way to the airport, like I'm like, well, 
if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I think that's the ADD problem. Like, I don't know how much you know about like how the dopamine stuff works for people with ADD, but like there can be a tremendous amount of like anxiety and distraction caused by not having like a clarity to what you're doing. But once there is a clarity, once a catastrophe actually starts to happen <laughs> or the event starts to happen, I become much less freaked out. So it, for me, it's the it's leading up to that. And I actually, I don't want to say I get depressed, but I get really like, I just don't want to do this. Yeah, and, and it, that's me for a week and a half before I leave. Yeah, it's kind of like the same, the, the definition they always give for introverts of like they, you know, that extroverts feel energized by talking with other people and introverts feel drained by it. Mm -hmm. uh, travel, like whenever I plan travel for myself, first of all, there's, there's always a day that is only a travel day. So for example, when I go to WWC, there's one day that the entire point of that day is traveling. Well, usually, from, usually two days, yeah, you know, uh, going, uh, going and coming. Yeah, exactly. So there's one day where I'm traveling there. Nothing else is happening on that day except for that I am traveling. That The entire day is dedicated to that. It's the lead up to it. There's the whole giving the entire day to travel, which means like I can allow for the flight to be delayed by six hours and still get there the, you know, the day I'm supposed to, right? And then there's the getting there and there's the unpacking and there's getting set on. That's it. And everyone else leaves like, oh, after the last session, I'm going to go hop on a plane. Like, that's my worst nightmare. Business travel is like my worst nightmare where you just got to get off work, get on the plane, go. go. No, it's like, right. I'm going to go home to the hotel. I'm going to sleep and I'm going to wake up. And the next day is my travel home day. And that's all I'm doing that day. And then you got to have like two, three, two or three days on either side of that to recover from. I know. I know. Well, well, you know what? I mean, I have to tell you, that, like amongst the many grandma paranoias that I could probably afford to let go of, there is one that I continue to cling to. And it, it's what you're describing. And like, you know what? If, if, this, if this only paid off one time in 15, it would still be worth it. The fact that it pays off at least one time in five tells me it's a good grand mal uh, paranoia. I ask to be flown in a full day before I arrive. Not a full day, but like basically I, I want to be there no later than the afternoon before I have to do anything. Yeah, no, it's crazy to be like, oh, I'm just going to get off the plane and go there oh and do God. a talk. Forget Who it. Has, who's ever done that and been, 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 you business know. Business travelers do it all the time. That's how they live. I used to try and do it. I never You could. are then, a business traveler. You don't realize it, but you are. Well, I'll tell you an anecdote in a minute, but then my other thing is like, I, I yes. And then here's the thing. I'm Mr. Fancy. I want to fly out the day after I've done whatever I'm going to do. I'll fly out in the late morning. You yeah. know, not because I'm lazy, but because, you know, and again, it only takes one time in five for that three-hour delay to suddenly, you know, and the, the tolerances on this stuff are really tight because you say, oh, I'll leave here. I'll fly in East Coast time early. You know, I'll arrive there about four o'clock. And then suddenly now you're arriving at seven o'clock or you're getting there during rush hour. Suddenly, oh, you should have called to make sure they're going to hold the room for you. And now here goes the craziness again. And so, like, the thing is, like, I, I could have a lot of trips be at least one day shorter, but I like that and because I know you refuse to believe I'm even slightly introverted, but I'm extremely happy sitting in a hotel room. No, like, I, see, I see some of these Hobbit tendencies in, in you as well. And, and the travel anxiety makes something like you can tell if someone doesn't think it's a big deal. Like so you've ever seen the people who are scheduling their flights and their whole goal is to like is to line things up as if they're blocks on a, on a timeline. So oh, yeah. And I no, want to no arrive at the airport because I know it'll take me exactly five minutes to get through TSA. Uh, you, you know, those people who like it's like a, a, a weird uh, sport for them to arrive and walk right onto the plane. I'm like, you are crazy. I get there two hours before I need to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And that just to do the thing they need to do if they're traveling for work and then they just want to come back immediately. They don't want to. They just, you know, they want to minimize the time that they're oh, away. Oh, yeah. Can I, get a, is, can I get a flight out at 6.15? Like, oh, yeah, really? Rush hour? And like <laughs> at the end of the working day in Manhattan, you're going to make yeah. it 
and, and you know experienced business travelers like that that whole idea some people like the idea of like imagine if i could go off to different countries for my job or whatever that appeals to them and that's yeah. exciting for them but like business travel is like the perhaps the worst thing i can possibly imagine because who like traveling for pleasure is like certainly everyone wants to go on vacation right the traveling is like the bad part that brackets what I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'll get to the destination and be there long enough to settle in to actually be able to enjoy myself before I have to get into travel mode again. And it sounds worse than it is because really, if you saw me travel, it w- I would look like basically, uh, you know, not an old pro, but it would look like this is someone who has traveled before. Right. Like, you know, I'm I'm calm. I'm calmer than most of the other people. <laughs> like, it just it, it's it seems I know exactly what to do. I do my thing. Everything works out fine. I've been super lucky with travel. I don't really have any nightmare stories about it. So it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. And it doesn't prevent me from doing it, uh, uh, from doing most of the things that I want to do. But here's the thing. Sometimes I don't want to do those things. And that's the thing. It's like, well, surely you want to go to Paris. This is just preventing you from doing it. A lot of times, like, what if you had teleportation? You could teleport to Paris. Would you do it then? I'd be like, eh. Yeah, maybe. Eh. I would teleport to WWDC. For sure, because I know like what I'm getting there is what I'm going to get. I'm not. I'm basically, I'm not into touristy things. Well, that's right? a, that's me in like Portland, because San Francisco to Portland is rarely more than two hours, and it's a direct flight. So that that's a no brainer. If somebody wants me to do something in Portland, I'll do that for nickels. If somebody wants me to fly to Charleston, ooh, that's going to be a toughie because I know that Charleston is a crazy airport. I know I'm probably going to have to take U.S. Air. Like I, Now, again, I'm going down this crazy corridor of like, I've been through this before. I'm going to have to take U.S. Air. I'm going to have to go through some other city to get there. I'm going to be on one of those insane little, like maybe a prop plane to get me from whatever the U.S. Air hub is uh, to, uh, to and so for me, like that's, again, that's that whole corridor. The anecdote was that, you know, when I first got this dot-com job in 1999, I used to have to fly between Tallahassee and San Francisco and back eh, every, you know, month or six weeks. And I, I did the matcha thing, whatever. I was, what, 30, 32 at the time. And so I will take, here's what I'll do. I'll take the red eye, you know, like, in, like for example, I might take the red eye to go to Tallahassee once I'd moved here. So what's that mean? That means I blow a day sitting around, dicking around, getting ready to fly. I fly out at 11. I arrive there very early in the morning. Ha ha, I'll go straight into work and have a productive day. After sitting on a flight for like five to eight hours, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe transfer in Chicago or something. And like, who can be ready for work at seven in the morning after being on a flight all night? It's manic. I don't know what I, I don't know what I thought I was going to accomplish, but basically I wasted a day the day before getting ready to fly out. And then I wasted a day the next day. I was, I was never a hundred percent at any point for two days. Yeah. I don't know why you even thought to do that because I was younger and I was, I was a dot com guy. I thought I was being macho yeah, to do it. That, I mean, some people, again, some people thrive on this type of environment, like people who are really good at business travel, who like, this is the type of job they want to have. Seem, it doesn't seem like something and, a serious person would do though, especially like with me and having to do a talk somewhere. Like I want to show up. I want to get there early. I want to make sure my remote works. I want to make sure my backup remote works. I want to do all that dumb stuff to make sure that like, well, to the extent possible, you know, I'm not the one who caused this to be a screw up. That's the unwritten crazy thing about what you're all talking about is that you're going somewhere to give a talk, which is another thing that I would never do. Like I don't <laughs> like public speaking. It's like you're all nervous about the flight. That, that's part of the thing of like, oh, if you could teleport to Paris, you're saying you wouldn't do it. Here's the problem with that. Again, like if you teleport me, you cut out all the travel problem. But then I'm in Paris, a place where I don't speak the language and I don't know where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. Oh, what if you had someone leading you around the whole time? Well, it's now it's becoming more appealing. Like basically, if I have less and less responsibility for dealing with any uncertainty. Like that's what I'm, you know, that's why the hobbits stay at home. They don't, 
they, they want everything where things are certain. And here's the thing about that. It sounds like, oh, you're just, this is a crippling fear and you need to get, you know, someone to, to look into this because it's impairing your life or whatever. I feel like I have dealt with it to the degree that is not impairing my life too much. But here's the other aspect of it that most people can't relate to. So it sounds like some BS thing. Uh, people who are like this and, and introverts, even just like talking, you know, meeting people and hanging out in general, like, it's hard for a lot of people to understand that introverts would really rather stay at home with one or two people who they know well than go out to a party with those same people but and 15 more people they know and a bunch of other friends, right? That that sounds like something stressful. Doesn't It doesn't sound like a good time. Whereas staying at home with one or two people they know well and just hanging out on the couch and talking or watching a TV show or watching a movie is more fun. Like the Hobbit type person the introvert type person enjoys the things that other people find boring. They, hmm. they derive enjoyment from sitting in front of their cozy fire with their dog on their lap and, and watching a TV show. I don't find that at all difficult to understand. Um, and I have to say that like, I, I feel like the people who are really scrapping for adventure, anybody who's been on a plane more than five or 10 times and looks forward to it is, is insane in my opinion. Well, you look forward to the destination. You look forward to being in an exciting new place. I, to I look forward out to being, and, and, I look and, forward to being you know, done with it. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. They, those people can all relate to it. Some days you just feel like you just want to stay home and have your dog on your lap and sit by the fire and read a good book. Right. Uh, everyone has that feeling sometimes like everyone can relate to that, that sensibility. Just imagine if you had it all the time and it was like, that is the thing you most want to do in life. If you picture like the idealized world where the idealized world for introverts is usually like, this is why I like all this apocalyptic literature is like, get rid of all the other people on the planet, leave the planet the way it is, this nice planet, get rid of all the other people and give you unlimited resources. So you never are going to be in want of food or shelter or whatever. What would you choose to do? Like the world is your oyster. You have no concerns about finding yourself food or dealing with any preparation like that. You say you have some companionship, whether it's a spouse or a family or a dog or whatever, what would you choose to do? And some people are like, well, I would go and see the world or I would go on adventures or I would do this. And the introvert's like, I would settle down in a library and <laughs> a really nice library. And I would, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, and it's, everyone wants different things, but I think it's harder because, you know, the culture is, you know, especially American culture is the idea that you should want to go out on adventures and do things. And if you want to just... Like man manifest destiny. It's why we're here. Yeah. If you want to just snuggle down in a library with a dog in your lap when given the entire world as, as your oyster to do anything you wanted, that shows that there's something wrong with you. Again, it's a, it's a character flaw. Or you're allowing your anxieties right. to, to dictate what you do. And no one wants to think about the fact that you know, perhaps you just enjoy that more than they do in the same way that I think we're all, you know, I'm, I'm totally willing to accept that people enjoy being in a new exciting place more than I do. That's why they do it. They're not, you know, they're doing what they enjoy most. We're doing what we enjoy most, but the culture says what we're doing is bad in some way because it, it shows there's something wrong with you mentally. You shouldn't be concerned right. about being in a new place. And again, like it can get extreme where like if you have panic attacks before you get on planes or you are like not going to your parents' funeral because you have travel anxiety or like, I'm, you know, that's, it, it gets to a point where you need to deal with it. I just, I'm, I'm one of those people who like, I just, I just endure it. I do what I have to do. I get through it. I try to get over it as fast as possible so I can enjoy my vacation or wherever it is that I'm supposed to be doing. I don't particularly look forward to it, but it's something I do. And then the final aspect, I didn't get to this, but the final part, the final travel thing that I've talked about at other places, which is true. And most, mostly I deal with it just kind of as annoying is I have, for air travel specifically, I have an irrational fear of air travel. It's irrational because air travel is super safe and everyone knows everything about it. 
I spend way too much time thinking about ways that airplanes can fail and and crash. Oh no, really? And every time I get on a plane, and that causes I, you to be at war with that rational mind. It's not really war because, like, I know what the deal is. I just don't <laughs> like it. It's like I don't like that. That's you know, no, no, like, you know, I, in air, airplane quotes. Every time I'm on a plane or anyone I know is on a plane, I just like, well, there's a good chance they're all going to die. There's nothing I can do about it. And 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 the irrational mind is like a good chance. Seriously, no. That's I mean, to, to be fair to my mind, I feel the same way whenever anyone I know gets in a car. <laughs> Cars are way less safe than planes. Like it's an irrational. It's not a rational fear. It's an irrational one, and it annoys me that it's there because I know it's irrational. I get on the plane. It's like, oh, this again. On top of everything else, I'm gonna think about this now. It's so stupid. And it's just especially once I get on the plane, it's like nothing you can do about it now. So just cross your fingers. I do count the rows to the exit row just in case. Like it just basic safety stuff i do make sure i try to wear non-flammable clothing i do look at what model <laughs> i do look at what model of plane it is like i you know i do the things that you would prep to, it, all of these are not actual things that do anything to help they're just things that make you feel better but it's always there kind of like it, it, way down in the corner of my mind this little rat like scratching his little claws and gnawing with his little teeth and it's like seriously are you gonna it's just it's stupid and it doesn't again of all the things this is not it's just one more stupid thing on top of thing why do i have an irrational feel i think i saw too many of like those uh travel safety crash investigation things on public television as a child so i know all the uh-huh. things that can go wrong with planes and uh and again like it's it's you know it's so astronomically safer than like being a pedestrian or car traveler or anything else right um, but it's, 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 it's the same, you know, the reason people are afraid it was just like, oh, this is a catastrophic one. Like when the plane goes down, everybody dies, right? It's like, see, I, I'm, I'm going to make this super boring, super pedestrian and not very sexy by talking about the thing that is just not sexy to talk about. It's not a thing I like talking about, but it must be said here, money. Um, I'll give you three things. You know, here's the thing. Oh, you're going to Paris. It's going to be great. I'll give you three things that would make my trip to Paris, whatever it is, conceivably theoretically nominally fun, which is that I have two to 10 times more money to do it than I actually need. I have two to 10 times more time or cushion for time than I actually need. And third, I have what I'm going to call just to keep them all positives, freedom, which is to say I have two to 10 times less responsibility or concern than I would ever have. But the thing is that none of that will ever be because that's the basis of the problem. I have this internal discomfort of going like, Oh my God, it doesn't matter how much money is in the bank. This is the poor kid problem. No matter what happens, I'm going to be worrying that I will have to spend a huge amount of money on something, even that's if that's $8 for food I don't want. When I think start thinking about the time thing, I go, oh great, so this gets delayed. Now my wife has to go like take off work to pick up our kid. I know I'm not supposed to be bothered by that, but in, I get the feeling sometimes people scoff at me when I say that, but I'm thinking about that the entire time I'm gone. The entire time I'm gone, I am racked with guilt about the fact that my wife already does so much more than I do. Not only am I missing my, my, my precious snowflake growing up, but I'm also I'm making life more difficult. And then the freedom and responsibility part, which is like if anything goes wrong, if I get hit by a cab, if something goes wrong, the seatbelt flies off wrong and breaks my nose, am I going to have a deductible for that? Like I don't want to – I don't like thinking the way that I think. But when I meet people who find it so easy to just jump on a plane and go somewhere, I'm incredibly envious because those three things are constantly rattling around in my brain because of the various – broken ways that I have grown up, all three of those things leave me with a constant sense of fear and uh, anxiety and guilt to some extent or another. I'm not proud of it, but that's just being straight up. We're like, you know, if this thing gets delayed one day, that has ramifications to it. And I don't, this has to be worth 
the money that you're paying me, which may be modest, to do this, plus it has to account for the fact that I need enough of a cushion of insurance that if something goes wrong, this I will not have to pay for this out of pocket, either in money or in time or in obligation and responsibility. That those That's my hobbit. My hobbit coming out is, like, if you want me to go fly to your user group in Boston, whatever, like, I have to account for that cushion. That will be on my mind the whole time, even if it's not on yours. Once I say yes, you're fine. I'll show up, right? For me, like, I will be thinking about that for three days. Yeah, all those, and you're right about all those things. It's like, well, you always try to number, like, if I had two times, there's 10 times the money, but it's certain things are just, they're just going to be your anxiety. Like, no matter how much money you had, no matter how much time you have, there's always, and this is so, so true in my life as well. Like, there's, there is no amount of, almost no amount of, uh, adding additional resources that will like make things go away. And I, the, the reason I convince myself of this is because like, like they just think of, you know, for people who have people who are generally anxious about things. And it's it, a lot of it's introverts because like other, if other people make you anxious or dealing with strangers makes you anxious, other people are everywhere, man. They're all over this planet. Right? That's so pretty, pretty, pretty much what it's made of. Yeah, pretty much everywhere you go, you're going to have to deal with that. So I was like, well, we just don't go anywhere. That's the way to deal with that. But anyway, if, if I conceptualize like sort of how, uh, you know, getting back to something Roderick said, the shape of the year and the seasons or whatever. Well, the, the shape of my year, I realized a long time ago, and a lot of people who have any kind of issues with anxiety, like this is this is how they live their life. And, and again, I, I want to stress, like this can be a, a crippling thing and a serious issue that you need to talk some, to someone about. I feel like it's never been that bad for me. Right. Maybe it's my rational mind that's helping me through that. But the fact that I know you're, it's you're there not is, talking about like generalized anxiety disorder or panic attacks. You're talking yeah. about a more kind of like just uncomfortable anxiety that's not clinical. Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, that, that I know is there and that I deal with. It and it's like, it, it's just more annoying than anything because it's especially because you're like, especially the rational feeling. But anyway, the, the shape of my year, I, I, I realized probably sometime in my 20s was, uh, it's basically whatever the next big thing you have to do. Very often it's travel, like it's a vacation or like, uh, you know, but whatever the next big thing uh, I need to do that I'm anxious about. Um, that uh, That is what I think about, like, as you talk about, you know, leading up to the trip, you're thinking about it, you're thinking about all the things that can go wrong or whatever. Just like that's out there, right? And it's like th that's a big hurdle that's coming up. And you approach the hurdle, do everything you can to prepare for it. You go you go through the hurdle. Even if the hurdle is like a vacation, I'm, I'm worried about the travel, the vacation. How's the vacation? You know, get into the vacation. The vacation is fun. You come home from the vacation. Oh, going home was always easier because like you feel like you've done it already and you, you go in the reverse and you know what you're going to do when you get home because you're familiar right. with that turf. Anyway, you get done with that and like, or even just like things like the home renovation that I did this year. Like it's always something that it's a hurdle. Like, so you, go, you get done with that thing. And you're like, oh God, I got done with that thing. And it's like three seconds before you just look forward to like, hey, what's the next thing? No, to so, me, it's, so, I, I think of this as like a stack of index cards where I'm fixating very heavily on the one index card that I can see of anxiety. But once I remove that, there's still 49 under that. Yeah. And like when you clear it, there is like you feel like now, now, like especially if it's a bunch of things. It's like this summer or, you know, even like any summer, I, like my, I got my OS 10 review or this year I had the yeah. home renovation. I had two separate vacations, you know, dealing with or say you're dealing with like a relative's health issue or your your child's academic issue or something like there's always a bunch of stuff. Sometimes they pile on top of each other. There's like six or seven of them at a time. Right. Uh, but if they're scheduled at the calendar, like you feel like you clear them like, all right, that the vacations are all over. The home renovation is done. The school year is started. We have our, you know, we know where we're going for the holidays this year. We've like, and it's like, you feel like you're going to break through into the clearing. Like you're in the forest and you're going to go into the clearing and the sun will shine on you. 
and sometimes that happens for like three seconds yeah and then you just look forward like to your in your analogy you just look at the next index card you're always just looking forward to what the next thing is that you're going to be worried about i mean in some respects that's what being an adult is about because kids you know you know but but like then it depends on how much how much are you worried are you worried in a way that like you can't sleep and you have like you're getting ulcers and it's in the pit of your stomach all the time or is it just like that's how you structure your life what is the next i'm talking about if somebody dares me to object to a trip to paris and we say, oh, they say, okay, you know, what is wrong with you? Why would you not be spending every waking moment feeling bad about how you haven't been to Paris, you animal? And I would be like, okay, I'll take that dare. So what are the terms of the dare? Well, what would it take for you to feel great about a trip to Paris? Well, first of all, it would help if I were about 22 and I didn't have anything that I had to do. Anything that I worried about are the 200 watt light bulbs that I use in this one socket going to set the place on fire, the kinds of things that I think about all the time. Um, but, you know, when I talk about the money part, it's just like that is just such a giant sack of unknown to me, to whether it's Paris or whatever, nothing against Paris. But going anywhere, like, again, all I'm thinking about is like, okay, if United, if United Airlines shits the bed and I get stuck in at Heathrow, and I have to go beg somebody to pay for the hotel. Well, now I'm like, am I, I'm going to have enough calls on my phone to be able to do what I need to do. This is going to come out of my pocket. That's why I say, like, if I knew the whole thing was booked and all that stuff was covered, if I knew I could essentially go into I am a single young man with time on his hands mode, again, I could get I could get with that. I'm not sure I could ever do that again. I'm not sure I will ever be capable, truly capable of single young man with time and money on his hands mode. And that's your, exactly what you're identifying, which is, I think this might be in my bones now. And it's just going to be up to me to try and like <laughs> breed it out of myself. But like to me, like so many things would have to be different for me to feel great about just going, you know, seven things could go wrong with this and nobody else would be hurt. I would not be paying out of pocket and I would not have any problems in the world because of the time that it took by not going flawlessly. You have the advantage, though, at least that these trips you're talking about would have a practical purpose. Like it would be like, well... You know, sometimes you got to do things you don't really want to do or that make you feel uncomfortable because that's like how you make your living or how you make ends meet. And like that is that it is a means to an end and Mm -hmm. that, you know, everyone, you got to do stuff you don't want to do. You know, like there's plenty of like, you know, boulders like that or like hills out in your future. Sometimes it's like, oh, I got to do this big thing at work or have a big project to work and it's got to come out because, you know, like maybe that's the next thing you're looking forward to. And looking forward to and dreading like they sound like they're opposites but they're very similar in sort of the shape of my year it's always like mm-hmm. what is the next thing you're looking at christmas as, christmas yeah right? as the next thing you're looking at is like it, it could be exciting like i love going on my summer vacations to, to long island and i i enjoyed our disney vacation like i like doing these things these are you know i'm not like saying i don't you know but but i know that there is associated uh stress in dealing with that and it's like it just it's like whatever the next thing is you're you're looking towards that's there's there's no like that's again that's just part of being an adult i feel like everyone lives their life in that way to some degree you don't want it to be uh, a crippling thing and once you figure out that there's always another index card and you just accept that then it just then it just literally becomes the shape of your year like what does the right. roller coaster look like this year is it big and wavy or the big dips and troughs or whatever or is it more of a kind of a smooth year uh and the money issue like I have a, a slightly different version of that. And then I'm, I'm usually pretty chill about the, the money stuff. Like I had to, it, my biggest challenge was Disney where everything costs a million. Those words, I can't believe those words just came out of your mouth. You're usually pretty chill about the money stuff. Yeah. But it's like, okay. I mean, so think of the Disney vacation, right? Everything in Disney costs a billion dollars, like everything, everything. And it's just like, I'm, you know, we've been planning this vacation for like, for a long time. Like I just, it was like, look, we're going to Disney. Everything's going to cost a billion dollars. 
just accept it. Like, mm-hmm. don't don't look at the price of every single thing you buy. Don't hem and haw. The, couldn't have this. Like, this is going to be expensive. Just just do it. Like, <laughs> there's there's a physical limit to how much money we can spend based on how many things we can bring home to it with us and in suitcases. Though we did ship some stuff, but <laughs> and, and like <laughs> like there's a number of days we're going to be there. There's the ticket cost. There's everything else. Every meal is going to be too much. Like, just. You know, because it's the worst thing you can do is be there and the whole time be worried yeah. about like, oh, what if we do this? Somebody and I feel right. the same category falls into like, oh, what I have to stay later and this cost is like, that's just the cost of this thing. Like basically, when I account for these things in my life, I assume it is it is you know like just like air travel or anything else. There's a potential that this costs two to five times more than you think it could. If you're not ready for that, don't sign yourself up for it. That is my very conservative kind of like, make sure you have this covered before you even consider doing it. Um, I mean, maybe that's why, like, you know, we, we drive Honda Civics and Honda Accords. He's like, could I afford a, a, a quote-unquote nicer car than that? Probably, but then I'm like, well, but, you know, a Honda Accord can be expensive, too, if something goes wrong on it. And if you get into an accident, you have to buy a new car. And how much money, you know what I mean? It's like... Oh, no, I, no, like, I think it's I think it's it's totally sensible. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know if you've been listening to the Cortex show, but uh, I can't stop thinking about that thing that uh, CGP Gray said. Um Three is two, two is one, and one is none. Yeah, that's, that's a military thing. Yeah, it is. But I mean, have you heard that? Have, did you hear that? Did you hear I'm talking about that? I've heard that before, yes. But yeah, it's basically this idea that if you've got one of something in, in practical terms, you actually kind of have none. It's, it, think of it in terms of backups. If you have one backup, you really have no backups. If you have three backups, you really kind of have two backups. And I was thinking about that. And like, for some reason, I've been, I, that they did the show like a week and a half or two weeks ago. And that still rings in my head where it's like, you know, like once you realize and accept that, you can allocate your resources in a way that makes a lot more sense. Don't buy the most expensive car that you can afford. In other words, I mean, I realize I'm pivoting here, but don't buy the most expensive thing you can afford. You know, buy the thing that you can afford to have and potentially fix or replace. And that gives you a very, a very different, like in your case, you know, it's one thing to say like, you know, it's not like you're saying like, okay, we're going to go like uh, pinch every penny for like two weeks, like how fun would that be? But we're also not going to blow the entire thing out. We have a rough idea of like, here's what we can afford to do that will still be fun and allow us to not have to overthink it. That's a nice zone to be in. Yeah, or actually, we pretty much blew the thing out. Because <laughs> like, the thing is, like, if you know you're going to do that, then fine, save money for five years. Like, that's yeah. the solution. Yeah, what's the solution to the car is, you know, like, just save a ton of money, right? You know, like, very conservative financially in terms of what I spend my money. And, and the money issue, like, speaking of anxiety, like, the reason I'm usually pretty chill about that is because I know how how just it, it would probably mess me up really badly. If, like, in, in my adult life, like, coming out of college, it's like, all right, well, now school is over because I'm not doing any more school because I'm pretty much done. Like, I did not want any more schooling, even though I conceivably could have continued to graduate it was like i was done with school right so school is mm-hmm. over now time to get a job and i had a lot of worry about how am i going to pay for myself to live how am i going to pay rent every month how am i going to pay utilities how am i going to buy myself food how you know like because especially when you just come out of school and you get your first job for peanuts my job was for peanuts right <laughs> making ends meet like it's the only time in like a you know upper middle class person's life where it's like oh making ends meet is an actual real thing because we're so spoiled like my parents had plenty of money we didn't have to worry about you know uh anything when i was a kid um i just complained about the expensive toys i didn't get but basically like i had food and shelter whatever that's fine and then when you know when you're an adult and settled in you have a cushion or whatever when you come out of school is that one time that like sort of the 
upper middle class spoiled kids for a moment get a glimpse of what it might be like to to worry yeah. about making ends meet. Where and, and, you, there's, and there's stakes because you want to succeed. It's your first time. Like even if you've got the implicit safety net of your parents, you don't want to use that. Like that's oh, the yeah, last no. thing in the world yeah, you yeah. want to do. Just, you don't you don't want to because what you're trying to you, what you're trying to do is prove to yourself that you can be an adult in the world. And when you don't right. have a lot of cushion, for example, say if you spent every single penny you in your entire life on your wedding. <laughs> you know which money well spent but uh like that was basically like i saved money my entire life and by the time i got out of college it was all gone so it was like oh I'm, so you're saying you actually did that you spent like five figures on a wedding i didn't spend it wasn't that much money but i didn't have that much money i bought i bought right. the most the the way i figured out what ring i was gonna buy is i figured how much money i had in the world and oh then my I, god and i spent i mean it, and you're, so, you're, such, you're such a romantic john my yeah, goodness. well i didn't have a lot of money in the world i'd spend a lot of it on youtube cds in college but uh <laughs> This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. You can learn more about Igloo right now by visiting igloosoftware.com slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. With Igloo, you don't have to be stuck at your desk to do your work. You can manage your task list from your laptop during a meeting, share status updates from your phone as you're leaving the client's site, and access the latest version of a file from home. You can do this all in your Star Wars jammies. We don't care. Nobody will know. These days, everything is mobile, so obviously your work should be too. Have you ever looked at your team's crusty old internet and thought, hey, the 90s called, man, and they want their weird homemade CMS back? I know I have. It's ponderous. The days of janky, hard-to-use internets are over. Igloo wants you to make your internet feel like a place you actually want to be. It is surprisingly configurable, and you can even completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your own team, just like home. Thanks to group spaces, role-based access permissions, and an easy drag-and-drop widget editor, you can reorganize the whole platform to fit exactly how your teams work. With our mobile lives, people are increasingly bringing in outside apps into companies, sensitive documents are getting scattered across different platforms, and this can cause big problems, but not if you use Igloo. Igloo allows you to integrate services like Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox into one big, easy-to-secure platform, And, you know, if you know terms like uh, 256-bit encryption, single sign-on, and active directory integrations, well, you'll know just how safe and secure Igloo is. With Igloo, you can share files and collaborate with your coworkers. You can also track who has read items with read receipts. This can be super useful for making sure that critical information has been seen, keeping everyone on the same page. The 90s are over, man. It is time to break away from the intranet that you hate. Please go and sign up for Igloo right now. You can try it for free. And for any team with up to 10 people, you can use it as long as you want. How about that? So please go and sign up at igloosoftware.com slash D-I-F-F-S. That's slash diffs. Our thanks to Igloo for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Again, didn't have any actual worries. We had our parents as backstops. My parents helped with the wedding. Like, you know, it's no actual real financial problem. So just to frame this, this is all kind of silly thing. But the whole point is I wanted to make sure that, you know, like if... It, it's the it's the few moments in my life for a person as financially conservative as me is like, you know, not let them living from paycheck to paycheck, but like there's not a lot of buffer. It's like I get paid and then I pay my rent, then I pay my utilities and I get paid again. And there's not a lot of give and take in that kind of equation. Uh, and I was, you know, again, irrationally, because I had the backstop of my parents who would have, would have you know, helped me out if there's any problem. That was never an option in my mind. But anyway, uh, the idea that like I need to have money coming in because I have expenses. The expenses don't go away. I need to I need to know that there's going to be money on this schedule coming in, which is like why I am just constitutionally incapable of ever being like a freelancer or somebody who like goes independent or does mm-hmm. and it's because 
they would be like, well, but, but, but when, when am I going to get paid next and how much is going to be? Like, if right. I don't know that, that is the only thing I will think about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is so silly for someone who's at my stage in life and comfort level and has never really wanted for anything, has always been super, you know, like, it is ridiculous to think that, but like, you know, some people have that mindset because they come from, you know, they grew up with a, uh, with financial, uh, you know, financial need and actual problems. And so they can never get out of that mindset. Mm-hmm. I did not have that problem is just the way I am. Like I didn't have to worry about that at all when I was a kid, but it's just the type of person I am that if I don't know that there's money you're, coming you're, in, you're on conservative, a schedule, you're conservative about I, those I'm things. just, you know, I'm, I'm anxious about those things. And so I want to eliminate that anxiety entirely. And the way you can eliminate that anxiety entirely is by having a plain old boring job and then living within your means, which is a boring answer. But people always ask me, like, why don't you quit your job and become independent or whatever? Like, I would be I, I would be miserable. <laughs> I would, all I would think about is, wait, where am I getting money? Where's the money coming from? I get money? Like, I just, I, you know, not that I need so much money. I just need to know that it's coming in on a regular schedule. And then doing gigs or doing freelance stuff like the idea that i that i would finish something and like not have any work in the queue and like just like well time is passing and i have to pay these bills and i don't have any new money like the the idea that i would be burning through my savings it's like where did you spend your whole life building up this the idea that you would build up a big nest egg and then go like blow it all to try to like like basically what i did with like a wedding and engagement ring like that's that's a, that's a, a thing that i could do as a kid but now i can't even imagine it so i do have that silly also probably irrational anxiety about things but i don't that's why i'm chill about money because i'm like well as long as i have a job and keep a job and have for the foreseeable future imagine that i'm going to have a job which is why every time i've changed jobs which has happened like six or seven times in my life tons of anxiety and i've always done it where it's like i have my last day at my previous job and then maybe a weekend and then i start my other job like i've mm-hmm. never i'm never without a job i need to like i need to transition straight from one job and do that because that what are you gonna mean There's like two days <laughs> right. out of the year where you don't get paid that can't happen can't happen to... you're, you're an employment monogamist <sighs> yeah i am um and it, that's only in be, until i'm magically independently wealthy because that's obviously what i would prefer but but barring that having an actual steady boring job that you go to every single day from nine to five suits me well and and again, people say, well, it only suits you because you are indulging your anxieties. You have you have a sickness, you have a disease of this anxiety, and this is how you're treating yourself. And it's like everybody right. does that. That's how everybody works. Something bothers you, and you do the thing that makes the thing bother you, not bother you. Whatever that thing is, these are my things. Everybody's got their things. Well, I, I think at, at this point we should wrap up soon. But I think I have a little bit of a pivot here um, because, uh, or a little twist, which is that, you know. We each have our own set of things that we worry about or are flustered and anxious or catastrophizing about. But, you know, something I've I mentioned this a little bit on Back to Work, but it's something I still think about a lot is I've realized that um, while there are some kinds of anxieties in the world that we can't prevent. And I just want to stipulate there are people who have anxiety disorders that are on a different level than what I, you know, muddle along with. Um, But and I'm speaking only literally only for myself here. Is it like it is? something I've come to realize is that certain kinds of anxieties are a self-involved, self-absorbed selfishness. That if I indulge myself in a certain kind of pathological anxiety and negative thinking, um, I don't do any favors for anybody. Like I'm not making home life better by being anxious. Like the, the, the dingling part of my brain thinks that worrying a lot will make me a better person. And it doesn't, that's never really helped anybody. If it gets you out of a jam and you learn from it, I guess that's good. 
But, you know, candidly, like when we came to, we did a big family trip over the summer that I was very anxious about for like all kinds of reasons. There's just all kinds of timing things and money things. And I was just like, ah, so many things to move around. But like, you know, even like by the time we got to the airport, you know, in Boston, I was just realizing like, you know, I'm not going to solve any of the problems behind my anxieties, nor am I going to ameliorate my own anxieties. All I'm going to do is make this trip not fun for everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like at a certain point, I realized like, that's not fair. It's not fair to like put everybody through this just because I've got a lot on my mind. And like, so that's something I've tried to keep in mind is like the more that I, and I don't mean to sound like a fruitcake here, but the more I get out of my head and turn outwardly toward how I can make something better for other people, the better off I am. And that could be as simple as I'm not just going to sit here on the phone and like keep looking at email because I'm nervous. Like, no, I'm going to go walk to the playground with my daughter and play. And I'm not great about that every day or 100% of the time. But like being cognizant of that, I think is slightly helping the problem. Like I have... I have an escape hatch now, which is like getting out of my own stupid brain and realizing that like the selfishness of getting wound up in my own flustered state um, is not helping and getting out of that will actually make, make it better for others. Yeah, when you have kids, that really helps because obviously you're, it's much easier to turn your attention to them. And then but they're, not, they're, they're the reason, right? I'm protecting. I'm protecting her, right? In, in that, in my mind, I'm protecting her by by being an idiot and acting like a dingling. But that's actually not helping, nor is it making anybody happy. Well, I find like if there's anything wrong with the kid, if the kid if the kid is not feeling well, then whatever I'm not feeling well about takes a back seat because like what well, you can just go into parenting mode that helps me get out of it. But like right. talking about indulging yourself, like for for introverts and people who have uh, any anxieties about traveling or any of things like that it is possible to overindulge that like if you just if you give into that entirely and don't expose yourself to anybody who challenges it in any way that's usually not healthy like that's how you take something that is not actually a problem and slowly turn it into a problem yourself so you do need like it is good to have a mix of these things like i feel like it's i don't know on the extrovert side is it good for extroverts to occasionally have an introvert telling them they shouldn't go out tonight maybe that helps them uh, keep things in check but the opposite is true uh introverts like you know again all silly cliches about that i don't know why this became a cottage industry maybe introverts finally found they can write things on the web and not deal with people and just let people read it but like this whole cottage industry of treating introverts like they're they're somehow people that are they're disabled in some way you have no idea how much i am saving for another show about this i have so much to say about the self-declared introverts so much to say and they need to have like special treatment oh the care and feeding of the introverts in your life oh god give me a break it's ridiculous but like uh, there is some truth to it, which is why introverts keep passing them around. And one of the truth, the truthful things that, that has uh, rung true to me is that uh, introverts want to be invited out. They just want to say no pretty much every time. So, like, if you're going out with a bunch of friends, always invite the introvert. And uh, keep in mind, the introvert will pretty much always say no. Okay. But, like, this is, is an example of why you need people in your life who are going to challenge whatever it is your anxieties are. Because if you indulge them too much, they will get worse. They will get bigger. So, you need you, if, you do, if you don't challenge them yourself, you need someone else. And if you have a family, that's usually not a problem because kids will challenge everything you ever want to do and like my wife wants to travel much more than i do and she was the impetus like this disney vacation she was the one who's really making it happen huh. all i'm basically doing is is saying yes okay i agree to it we should go on it and i'm going to do my best to have a good time and like you know what i mean like but if if there's not it's good to be pushed into like whatever it is that you're uncomfortable with it's good to have some reason to be some motivating force to make you challenge yourself because if you don't challenge yourself and don't try to like it, it will like circle in on itself it will spiral down and I, I, I think I kind of agree um 
I've added an introversion to the list because I'm going to stop myself. I have a lot to say about self-declared introverts. But um, I think what you're describing is true. The only, my only amendment to that would be what really helps is something that makes you want to do it differently. Like the whole pressure, like, come on, come to the party, you know, Spuds McKenzie. Rah. Like that's not really helping anybody. Something that makes you find a little spark or flame inside yourself to do something more than just be a hobbit. Uh, can be a really good thing. I, there's, I mean, like I would just assume, like when I go when I go home from here in a few minutes, few minutes, I'm gonna go home and watch maybe watch the game. I'm gonna sit on I'm gonna sit on the couch. I'm gonna hang out. I'm gonna eat some leftovers. I'm gonna be a hobbit. Like that's something we all want to do. Having external validation and approval is something everybody wants too. It's just that when you know there are people who go and get that on Tumblr, but then get to still like declare themselves to be an introvert. That's a funny thing to me. Like. What what I guess what I'm saying is like to find that that whatever that thing is inside of yourself that makes you look beyond whatever your self declared limits are can be a good thing. And I don't want to sound like Tim Ferriss at this point, but like I think I, I just I, I'm the things that we like push people into or force people into. I think bad idea, but the things that that helps lead somebody to the inevitable conclusion that they, their world can be bigger than the box they perceive it to be. Just that realization, even if they don't act on it immediately. Is a, is a giant step forward. Yeah, and again, with the family, if you have a family who wants something that you are slightly uncomfortable with, you will do, you'll be motivated to do it because you know, well, the family will enjoy it. Like I'm doing, this is a thing I'm doing for the family is for the enjoyment of people who like, I want them to not feel like they are confined. Like they don't have these, they want to go, they want to travel. And it, my, my wife is never going to travel as much as she wants to if right. she goes with me, right? Uh, but on the other hand, I'm going to travel way more than I would if I wasn't married to her. And I think uh at least my side of it's a good thing for me. You may say that her side of it is all poor woman. She can't travel the places she wants to travel. But I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm holding her down with that. But like, there's got to be some good aspect. To, I don't I don't know the other side of it. I don't know what the as. Maybe it's like uh, teaching people the magic of Hobbit tendencies can you know teach people the the enjoyment of being inside your cozy house on a snowy evening where maybe this doesn't happen unless you don't have kids. But uh, <laughs> like there's peace and quiet and just everything is nice. You know. Well, I mean, like, when does introver introversion just become what's convenient? Because here's the problem, and this is something I, I, I don't like to press my kid on this, but it's something I think about, which is that, like, if, if we, we don't go to every single, like, community dinner, we don't go to every single party, we don't go, you know, like, things around school. Like, we're just, we could potentially be doing two things a day just based on school events, let alone Girl Scouts or anything like that. But like, it, it, it's not difficult to fully book yourself up. I am not a full booker. I like our weekends to be as free as possible to just chill out, you know, so we can just do the week. But there's a thought technology that I have, and I don't want to press this on my kid because I'm not trying to make her feel bad. But here's the thing is like, when you don't go to the party, uh, you don't go to the picnic. You don't go to like welcome new kindergartners party. Like you're not really any, you're not any worse off. And there's no quantifiable thing that you can, there's no value you can put on your not having gone to that. But there is a little part of me that thinks it would have been nice to go to that. It would have been nice to go to the party you didn't need to go to. Not simply to show up, but because there's no way to even know what you could have contributed to the community and what the community could do for you. And if you get in the habit of just not going to stuff because you're a hobbit and you like being on the couch, like I, I, I don't know at what point that goes from like, I'm a person with a self-diagnosed problem 
to like, we're not, we're not talking about social anxiety. We're talking about people who mostly just want to play video games. And I just want to clarify that there's a big difference. It's one thing to say like I have generalized or I have social anxiety disorder or generalized anxiety disorder versus like, I just don't like putting on pants. And I think if you know that difference in your head, you're good. But like, be careful about how many treatises you put out about how sitting on the couch is something that everybody needs to acknowledge as though you're some kind of like historically dis- discriminated class. And it's like, mostly you just want to watch TV and that's okay. But like, remember, like we need you. You're in the community. Like whether you like it or not, we need you. So like when you can show up for stuff, we would love to have you there. We don't want to make you uncomfortable or make you like, you know, have to go write on LiveJournal about it. But like, if you wanted to come, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, uh, for kids and for adults, you need to practice. Like, we, we are social animals. Uh, for the most part, I think even all introverts, even even the, the most sort of misanthropic uh, people who read uh, apocalyptic novels as if they're, like, aspirational, uh, understand that we would be miserable if we were alone, right? So if you are even mildly introverted, you have to practice. You have to go to... The, sometimes it, it falls in the categories of doing things that you think you're not going to want to do. Um, because if you don't practice going to interact with people, you will never get better at it, and you will, you will make yourself more miserable because everybody needs people, like even introverts need people. Well, so and, and you're just, if, reinf- if you're you're just- reinforcing in practice. You're reinforcing this thing that, that whether it's however you diagnose that, you are reinforcing that over and over with what your behavior is. Yeah, like if you just always choose the path of the resistance, like I want to have, you know, I mean— I, Again, I don't think I have uh, this uh, issue to, to uh, a very large degree because I always usually recognize like, you know, say you got like, otherwise it'd be in my first job, like, you get your first job and it's like, well, I really should go to a different job and I'm comfortable in this one that you will not progress in that way. And if you're like, well, uh, you know, everyone always invites me out to things, but I never go. They're going to stop inviting you and then you're going to be all alone. Like, and you don't want to be all alone. like most people. I, I haven't met anyone who I feel like is truly better off without people like we're, we're social animals we want other people we want to hang out with other people and if you go to a bunch of things you may find out hey you know what i'm actually enjoying myself with this thing and that will make it easier to go to the next one but if you always give in to the i just have to stay at home all the time it will just make things worse so again it, you can do this yourself if you just think about it and your rational brain can win and then you can figure out how this is going to work um and sometimes you need a kick from somebody else to drag you to something right there's this also just this bigger thing that I, I'm really struggling with this because I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be judgmental or unkind, but as you get older, there's a pattern that'll come up. And this kind of goes back to our discussion of Erickson, like, you know, whatever, a few weeks ago. But there's a pattern that's going to keep coming up, um, especially for men, maybe. I don't know. Probably true for women, too. But I think, it, you know, the, the conventional wisdom or the cliche is that women tend to want to deal with their problems by talking to other people. Men tend to want to fix their problems by not talking to other people. I don't know if that's always true. I found that to be true in my experience. I will say this, be skeptical or at least cautious about any solution where being by your by yourself for long periods of time feels like not just a solution, but a win. Because um, as you get older, you're going to want those connections with other people. And they're not always fun and they're not always convenient. And I, I don't mean to sound like I'm browbeating anybody. All I'm saying is it's easy enough when you're in your 20s and have three different game consoles to like decide that like you have found a name for your how you are that <laughs> provides its own level of self-defense. That's great because you still have the ability to walk around and stuff. At a certain point in life, you're going to want to have people around you. And like, don't let that muscle go to waste is all I would say. I don't mean to pressure and I don't mean to be unkind, but like, I just know for myself that 
I will go into a slump where for three to nine months, that's all I want to do because now I'm a self-declared introvert. And when I come out on the other end of that, I go, ah, you know, maybe I was a little depressed. And maybe uh, on some level, talking to somebody about that or being around other people in a way that's, that I'm comfortable with could have made a huge difference. I would not look at five months of not being, or five years of not being around other people as a giant win for how you are. Uh within certain constraints that I'm sure I could come up with. But do, 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 do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, like knowing if you have introverted tendencies, knowing that they're there is a key to allowing yourself to deal with it as like not allowing yourself to fall into the trap of just merely doing what makes you like the path of least resistance, falling, you know, like what, what never what never causes you to feel discomfort. Right, because it's so easy to just fall into that. You have to know that you're doing. It. You have to know that that path doesn't doesn't lead to anything good. Which, and you can, there's a lot of ways you can do this besides just you know, hey, force yourself to go out every once in a while. The other, you know, I, I mentioned these these books about the end of the world that I read. That is actually for me a great tool because like what you're looking for is like you know I, you have to know first. I'm the type of person who has hobbit tendencies. I the things that hobbits like, I like. They make me feel good and happy and warm and comfortable and safe. They're what I prefer. If you know that, you can get that feeling by hey, reading the hobbit, right? Or reading a book about the end of the world. Like it depends on your, you know, for me this works. Other people might make them more anxious or whatever. But anyway, you can consume media or engage in activities that that give you that feeling for me end of the world books where everybody is gone and there's very few people left right. i just feel relaxed about the, the 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 idea that the potential number of interactions with other people is greatly reduced and that the, and a lot of the the rules and structures that uh, that i'm anxious about are no longer there money no longer has any meaning uh you know you're you're less likely to be in a situation like like you know, like, no, st- like status fairly like capricious status yeah. There's no high, there's no, uh, you know, expectations that you're going to do something in a particular competent way. You're going to get off the plane. You're going to go to the thing. You're going to like, you know, everything. (laughs) And just merely reading books about that, I find like pushes all those same buttons as if, and and once you've done that, it's like, you know, whatever the stupid analogies are charging your batteries or whatever, that, that is the same as, you know, spending five months alone in your house uh, playing video games. But all I did was like read a book for a night. Like it gives me the same kind of good feelings. And so then I'm all powered up to go out and do something. I mean, it, it, you know, again, I, I'm saying this, it sounds ridiculous, cause especially with people who can't relate to this type of feeling. I'm, I'm just trying to give a glimpse. But like, you know, like it's not. It, all it is, is a vague kind of feeling of a vague preference for the most part. It's the type of thing that, that will make you even the type of thing that will make you say, like, there's a bunch of movies out that I want to go to. But do I, how many of them do I want to go to enough to go see them in the theater? I go to the theater a million times. The same theater I always go to. I'm as comfortable going to the movie theater as I could be going anyplace else. But there's still the little extra thing of getting like, off your butt. Like a little, little, little resistance. Yeah, tiny bit of get. Everyone feels this under getting, getting off your butt, getting in your car, finding parking, going to the thing, getting the tickets, doing all that. You know, there's no anxiety about it. There's nothing that could possibly go wrong. It's practically walking distance. There's literally, there's literally nothing that can go wrong that couldn't go wrong, like commuting to work. It is the most mundane, boring thing ever. I don't but, commute to work. I'm an introvert. Yeah, but but the but there's always just one little thing of like maybe you even just call it laziness at that point because you're like, eh, I don't know. And sometimes what you have to do is is realize. 
do you really not care enough about the movie to go in the theater or are you just being lazy at that point um and then it's you know and then, then you have to let your rational mind get in it's like is this movie an important movie to see in the theater mad max it was important enough for me to see in the theater because i feel like this is the type of movie that's going to benefit from them moonrise kingdom i waited for on video uh you know it really depends on the movie but like that that type of calculus like you have to do it with an eye with your eyes open understanding what all the factors are because if you don't consciously think about the fact that hey you are an introverted type of person and this and and left to your own devices you'll do this if you don't actively think about that it will just it'll still be there you won't be thinking about it and you'll be convincing yourself that you're making a decision based on something else entirely you'll be like oh no i i don't want to go there because i'm really tired today really is that why you don't want to go there like you have to you have to understand why you do the things you do and all of this stuff like uh, of knowing what you like and knowing what your tendencies are and knowing what kind of person you're rather you're going to label yourself with introversion or whatever or any kind of anxiety you have you have to know all that stuff that is there because you can't make decisions with that like if you're not honest about your your you know irrational fear, fear of flying and you just be like i'm over that i fly all the time i fly every year like six times which you know I didn't fly in a plane. I think I flew in a plane like twice my entire childhood, and now I do it like multiple times a year, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm totally over it. Nope, it's it's like being an, an alcoholic. Like, you're not over it because you haven't had a drink in five years. You can always be an alcoholic. I'm always going to have this anxiety. You just have to know that it's there because if you pretend it's not anymore, you're just setting yourself up for failure. I understand what the stakes are for, and I, I'm not trying to like, you know, overly like scientificize this but like i understand what the stakes are for somebody who's got an anxiety disorder who's you know legitimately bronchial but but you know the what are the stakes for an introverted per like an introverted person doing more than they're used to what are the stakes beyond being a little uncomfortable and am i am, am i being unkind or on the wrong side of history yeah, that's the the that's basically the stakes. Like the downside is you're putting yourself in a situation you might be mildly uncomfortable, and it and it feels weird. It's like a, a a simpler version of me choosing to go on something that might make me motion sick. It feels weird to voluntarily choose something that you know will cause you some discomfort right. for the promise of a reward that you hope is going to balance that out. And uh, no one wants to do that. Whatever it is that they don't like or aren't into, even if it's just like going to a restaurant where you know you don't like the food. Like, ugh, I don't really want to, you know, it's like, well, I should just go because I'm going to enjoy the company. Am I going to enjoy the company enough to tolerate that restaurant where I know everything there I don't like? Uh, <laughs> you've got you got to do that calculus, right? It's it's that right. kind of like mild. It's like, it's like dating, like all the stuff people go through in dating. Just hearing like the first three or four bullets from what anybody does to get a date makes me want to crawl under a table. I'm just it sounds like the chances of it working out are so slim and the huge amount of overhead and time is is just exhausting for me to even think about courtship though is a good motivator like you know that's exactly right introverted people like you are usually you know if if you are going to court and you're highly motivated (laughs) to do things that you would never do like because you know you want to impress the guy or impress the girl you want to you want to do the thing that they want to do you go to the place that they want to go you'll pretend you don't have all the anxieties you have like that's, yeah, you, that's yeah, a positive, you want to make it look easy yeah you that's a that's a, that is a positive influence and like you know after you get the guy or girl hopefully the positive influence is to keep them happy and you know do things that are you know ideally your family your children your spouses will motivate you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do on, on all fronts uh, and going in all directions to help you improve each other. And it won't, you know, and, and I think you know, that, you know, that the calculus for that, the rational calculus for that is like, if you don't do that stuff, the end game is like, 
you die alone and miserable. Like that's the end game, right? Like, if you just if you just give in to everything, you know, then just you see people do it. And you talk about getting older. I think this is the thing that happens when people get older. You get comfortable with the things you're comfortable with. You decide nothing new is going to be coming into your life, and you kind of fall into a rut. And that rut can be super feel super comfortable for people who who are hobbit like, right? But it's not <laughs> it's not a great way to be because eventually people start disappearing from your life and you're kind of left going, you know, like when the last one goes, right. Whether they leave you or die or whatever, you're like, I've got nothing else. Cause I haven't talked to another piece, person. In, and and I, I read a lot of articles about this. Like it tends to happen to men more than women. The mm-hmm. men will just be like, I'm content with the people I know. And if they move away or die, I'll just be alone for the rest of my life. Whereas women, uh, you know, again, stereotyping and just, you know, these studies that I've read are, are do a better job of, of uh, maintaining social connections that sustain them in their old age. And that's why marriage is so important for men. Like the married men uh, live longer or whatever. Yep. Is that, is, yep. Yeah. Or in the joke that it just feels longer. Anyway, uh, that, <laughs> because, because the women in their life, uh, you know, do the heavy lifting to maintain their social relationships, which is fairly terrible, but that's the reality. Anyway, if you're aware of all these things, then you can take steps to counter them by saying, don't let yourself fall into that easy chair and never get out of it for your entire life. Um, yeah, I kind of started this out on the other side of the thing now and now of saying like, I like these things. I want to do them. People need to understand this is what I want to do. And, they, uh, and I'm ending on the other side, which is like, you know what? Don't give into that all the time. But like, I feel like those two things can fit nicely in my head and that I don't feel guilty by like, I mean, again, having a family makes this not a problem. Like, I don't feel guilty about doing what I imagine. What, what 20-year-olds do all the time is like, can you imagine? I don't know if you can imagine this. Can you imagine spending an entire weekend day just watching a movie in your house i haven't done that in like in like years because i I would feel like i would feel pretty guilty about that i wouldn't feel guilty at all because i haven't done it in years right it used to be (laughs) because it's impossible the kids have 20 activities every day and you have to go to work and there's things why do you do that why do you why do you overschedule them like that that's uh, my wife is my wife is the overschedule so why do you put up with that that's nuts well, you know, I call it overscheduling. She calls it underscheduling, and we meet in the middle. No, right? that's uh, like I, if it was. But here's the problem: if it was up to me, my kids would like have no activities, and it was up to her, the kids would have seven activities every day. So we meet in oh, the middle. I, 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 oh my gosh, I'm putting it on the list. Oh my god, I want so many fewer, fewer. Uh, yeah, you and me so both. Many fewer activities. But, but like, but again, is that just like, well, is that good for the kids, or is John, that just because John, you don't want to drive them girl, everywhere? We're doing Girl Scouts. We're doing Girl Scouts. Oh, we're doing Girl Scouts. Do, yeah, but I mean, like, why, why are we not doing Scientology? I mean, why don't we just go all the way in? Like, <laughs> Girl Scouts is not Girl Scouts is way better than Boy Scouts. Doesn't have all the the homophobia and stuff like that. Girl Scouts is actually, as far as I've been able to determine, a good organization. Well, yeah. Hmm. Well, the, the rule of thumb. <laughs> get ready. The rule of thumb is that Boy Scouts <laughs> is a very well organization, <laughs> very well run organization full of terrible people and that um girl scouts not terrible people but th- you know there's problems and that girl scouts has a lot of good-hearted people and like the organization is a mess well i mean it, for eight-year-olds i don't really care but like this is not this is not their life path oh my god <laughs> like, the, just, i mean just like the the, the 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 selling and the patches and the there's just so uh, much about it that just sets me off i i, I wouldn't have gotten into this nope, but that's, me neither. That's just I, wouldn't either. Of, I mean with my kids it's like one of we've tried so many activities mostly because my wife has to try this try that so you never know what's going to stick with kids my kids guess what both of them have some hobbit tendencies <laughs> and uh <laughs> surprise <laughs> genetics works that way and so they are like like when i was a kid i wanted zero activities and my uh-huh. parents forced me to do activities i did not want to do them ever 
My kids are. That's very all I can. Re- all I can remember is like all the things we've talked about on here. The the innumerable times you've talked to me about like my childhood and like you know young like my youth activities. Like all I can remember is all the things where I'm like ah. Oh, I would just never want to expose them to that. It's not like it was the end of the world. I mean, it wasn't like, wasn't a Holocaust, but like if I could save my kid from the equivalent of accordion lessons, I would love to do that. Yeah, but yeah, it builds character, they say. So does being a veteran, but you know. Here's the trick with the activities that I think the line we're trying to walk. Yeah. I want, you know, again, mostly motivated by my wife. It's good for kids to be exposed to all sorts of different things. Maybe you really like soccer. Maybe you really like knitting. Maybe you really like art class. But you don't know until you try it. So, you you know, dance, gymnastics. Like, you you name any activity that, that a kid of any gender can do, and our kids have all done it. But the thing that the place I draw the line is, it seemed to me that in my childhood, if there was any activity selected, A, the kids didn't have much choice in the activity, and B, once you started it, you had to do it until, like, you somehow found a way to extract right. yourself. Right. Whereas with you had like, to like that's fake, the worst fake, fake an injury to get out. Right. And with, with our kids, I'm more like you try dance, you, you know, you have to do whatever, you know, the, the semester or the course or whatever the length of the thing is, because we paid for it and you're going to do it uh, at the end of it. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it, but you do have to have an activity. So pick a different activity. Right. And that's fine. It's much worse when it's like, you're going to learn the accordion. Oh, I hate accordion lessons. And like six years later, you're still taking accordion because your parents force you to. That is yeah. an unhealthy thing. But I want my kids to try everything because they don't know what they're going to like. Well, to, to at least, to at least stick with it i mean do you remember gosh what was the title the episode incomparable episode about pixar movies what was the name of the episode it was a one of your favorite phrases i think wind the frog no, that's something one. about wasn't this like how kids have terrible taste oh yes yes that's true and because kids do have terrible taste they have terrible judgment and they here's the thing about a kid and this is it's hard for grown-ups and it's hard for kids is that it will be almost impossible for a kid to know anything about whether they I don't even want to say we'll like something. That's such a dumb term. But like whether this is for them, right? Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for a kid to know whether something is for them until they have really participated in it at least three times, maybe on a schedule. So there's all kinds of things where like the first two weeks of Spanish, man, my daughter was hating Spanish. Third week of Spanish, she's suddenly into Spanish. She might hate it next week. But the thing is, you do have to do it more than once. You've got to try the tomatoes more than once. If I, If my mom had not encouraged me let's say to try tomatoes once per calendar month i may not be a tomato fan today it really took multiple times yeah, that, so that's, like, the, that's the parent thing where they want you to do again with character building like once you start according your lessons you're going to keep taking them because you know you're not a quitter and it's a character building or whatever and, uh, and they're right. right about the thing they're just wrong about the scope like like I said, if you we sign up for the dance thing and it's three weeks of dance, guess what? You're doing three weeks of dance, no matter how much you hate it. Well, and but the, and the at the role, end, of, yeah. at the end of the three weeks, you've done a session. If you don't want to do dance, pick a different activity. So it's like it's the balance. It's like, well, how is that different than letting them leave after one class? Well, one class is not enough, right? Whatever the session length is, right. whatever that's the length. And most of these things you pay for in chunks. They're not like unlimited, open-ended things. There's always an obvious ending point. It's like. This is how you try things in life. You try them, and you don't get to try them on the first day and say, I'm slightly uncomfortable at dance. I don't want dance anymore. It's, well, <laughs> this is the activity you picked, and you're doing for the whole thing. And I think that is enough to get like the supposed lesson of, hey, guess what? When you sign up for something, you got to see it through. And then you right. can decide if you like it. And the thing with kids is they don't know what they like. They might circle back and have like, oh, I do this activity. I don't want to do that. I do something else, do something else, and say, you know what? I actually did like that. And circle back to it and do it for three more sessions because they actually like that. But then decide they don't like, you know, like they're kids. But they just, you just need to let them try stuff parents also i think don't realize the long game 
for the bar that they're actually setting to mix metaphors. But like they think they're being like firm and they think they're being a rock. And they're saying like, I'm always this person who will expect you to stick with something for a while. But I think what parents don't get is that they're teaching their kid to game when they do that. That a lot of times when, when they're trying to be this strong person who's constantly like laying down the law and how things are going to go and, tr- and trust me, this is going to be fine. Like I think what they, you're teaching a kid how to be a little tricky. Because you're teaching that kid how to set aside the most obvious thing in the world, which is how they actually feel about something, in order to either, A, placate their parents out of fear or, or guilt, or how to just flatly fool them into like figuring out how you can push the right buttons on your parents by pretending to be okay with something for a while while you're actually somewhere else. And at that point, you're no longer even communicating about it. Yeah, or pretending to like like something else better. It's much better, like, you know, I don't have this problem with my kids, but it's much better to like... It, have your kids tell you how miserable they are you want to know what your kid is feeling do you oh, like God, please karate? tell me please tell me you're miserable <laughs> oh my they, god they, that's not a problem like but anyway like if you if you like karate tell me if you don't like it tell me and you well, can you know, say you like, know what i mean though like it like a kid if my kid can tell me like that she's unhappy about something and now we're getting back to the whole like 90s sitcom thing but like you know but if, if my kid can tell me she had a bad day and why like that's that's a one percent kind of day for me because like I don't know how many of those uh, like like I will get, but that's something I can deal with. It's saying like, oh my god, realizing track camp, what a terrible idea! Track camp was such a drag. It's a summer camp where you run track. What were we thinking? It was cheap. It was fairly easy to get to, and it's the one camp of all the ones we did all summer where we're like, wow, that was a real boner. That one did not go well at all. And it's probably because she said like, you know, this is no fun. I just I, I'm I'm tired and I just want to sit down. And I was like, you know what? I get that. I'm a hobbit. Yeah, the, I, the same. The one line that my parents drew and were kind of drawing is that you have to have an activity, especially a physical activity. Like you know, there's lots of things you might be able to do, but like, it's not like you have to pick a sport, but you have to pick something that involves physical activity. And we don't really care what it is, and you can try different things, uh, but you have to pick something. And for my parents, that was like, especially during summers, you have to do something during the summers. You have to go to camp, or you have to get a job, or you have to, you know, you have to be occupied. And given my tendencies, like, I still remember, I wish I remembered, I'm so bad with dates, I wish I remembered what summer this actually was, but there was one magical summer in my childhood between the time when I was going summer camp, but before the time I was old enough to get a job where I had a summer where I, and, and I was old enough to be home by myself because both my parents worked, I had a summer where I didn't have to do anything. And that summer boy like i still think about that this is the most magical Ooh, time God. because you have no job no place to go no school no parents because they both go off to work and i think both of my siblings like my my brother was too young so he was like at camp and my sister was older and she was probably working it was just me and like my bicycle and the whole of long island that i could reach with my bicycle which was substantial no license at that point because i was too young right boy that was that was the summer to end all summer. Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember what year it was. Maybe six between sixth and seventh. I don't know. You were so I, relaxed and happy. Why would you notice? I think it was probably. It must have been before puberty too, because I wasn't distracted by that either. So it had to be before <laughs> puberty. Like that's you know, because otherwise you'd be like hunting for girls the whole summer and and you know not finding hunting them. really. Yeah. Well, you know where the girls do they exist? Where are they? Where where are they? Where are they staying? How do you talk to them <laughs> on the trail? Yeah, exactly. But no, that wasn't at all. So it was it was just me and like trees and bicycles and rivers and streams and you know just model airplanes and like it was boy that was the life 